Welcome to Have You Seen This, the world's only podcast about obscure, overlooked, and misbegotten visual media. All discussions will be spoiler heavy. You have been warned. I'm Jennifer Albright. And I'm Tim Heiderich. And we have another returning guest. It is Josh Lewis of the Sleezoys podcast, who you may recall we had on to discuss the evangelical nightmare, the burning hell. Josh, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Happy to be back. I was converted after that episode. (laughs) To Satanism, (laughs) of course, but... (laughs) You have seemed particularly pious lately. Right, yeah. I only drink on Sundays now. Um, Before we get started, I want to remind all our listeners that we do have a Patreon at patreon.com slash have you seen this. You can join us for the low, low price of $2 a month and get access to all our bonus content. Uh, I would also like to shout out a couple of new subscribers. We had a big, big influx in the wake of our Death Wish 3 episode. So thank you to everyone who hopped on board the crazy train with us. Yeah, everyone Um, who has a death wish. (laughs) A third, fourth, and fifth death wish. Um, But uh, shouts out to uh, Kyle. Uh, Thank you so much for your kind note. We really appreciate you listening to and enjoying the show. And shouts out also to Joe G. Thank you again for your contributions. We love that you guys are on board with the show. Uh, Thanks again. Uh, so, uh, let's jump into it. Uh, the reason that I have Josh on is because he has some particular insight into, uh, theater exhibition, and, uh, lately there's been talk that the people at, uh, Trump's Justice Department want to put an end to the Paramount decrees. What is that, you ask? Well, it was the big, big antitrust lawsuit uh, brought by the U.S. government against the major movie studios back in the 40s because the studios at the time were so vertically integrated, they basically controlled every aspect of the process from production all the way through distribution and exhibition. Um, And so naturally, this was seen as a monopoly, and the U.S. government saw it in its interest to break this up. Now we appear to be going in the other direction, but um, let me throw it over to Josh, uh, because he probably understands this stuff a little better than me. Um, Josh, (laughs) first give us uh, your background a little bit in, uh, uh, you know, you can tell us about your background in both film and uh, theatrical exhibition, I guess. Sure. Um, So for me, I'm coming at this from the point of view, uh, I mean, I obviously like most people interested in film. I went to film school at one point. I uh, realized in film school, I kind of was more interested in sort of like the the academic side of it. I kind of liked thinking about movies. I liked, you know, um, theories and aesthetics, and I liked um, writing about films. So I ended up pivoting into doing some freelance film criticism, which I still do. I still go to film festivals and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, it, it's hard 
uh, as anyone will tell you, to make a living doing freelance writing in any capacity uh, mm. in today's age. So uh, hard to my... do freelance anything in any capacity in today's <laughs> freelance uh, podcasting. Age. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So so I so so I do the film podcast, obviously, Sleezoids, and then. Um, uh, Great show, by the way. You should definitely check it out. We consider them. We consider them our sibling show. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we and that we're always crossover with you guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, it gets there's real a, ugly behind the scenes. <laughs> there's a lot to get into in the genre and exploitation realm, and it's. Gl- I'm glad that there is even other shows talking about those kinds of films. So I really, I'm a big fan of your guys' show as well. Yes, um, and you were one of the yeah, fir- two shows. You are one of the only shows that I don't actively resent for uh, stealing our thunder. So uh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, if there's anyone else talking about the devils, I can't hate that. You know, I need to Woo. just I, I, I want more people talking about it. Absolutely. Um, but my my other job outside of podcasting and the writing is um, I help program and manage a um, independent theater in kind of like a, a, a medium sized Canadian city. Um, so it, it's an interesting size city where it's it's not quite like a um, a Toronto or Vancouver, which is kind of like our version of New York and L.A. It's not we don't have um, a lot of competition in the in the art house scene, but we do have a lot of multiplexes mm-hmm. uh, more so than we should have for my location, which is a place called London, Ontario. It's just outside of Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. it's going to be like it's it, not Winnipeg, is it? Yeah, so so it's it's an interesting, <laughs> but it's an interesting thing to try to get into because before I I didn't really understand how exhibition worked and seeing it from the inside, uh, you get a very different view of the way that production and distribution work and kind of the relationships that some of these companies have with each other, um, and there are some concerning things happening that have I mean I've only been working this for about a year and a half and that year and a half we have seen some concerning developments in that industry um primarily the biggest one Disney buying Fox which Mm -hmm. is a huge problem um Mm -hmm. and then obviously you know there there are conversations about the theatrical experience at all and whether you know streaming is taking away from any of that or not but I can say this as someone who right now um, because of the Disney Fox deal, can't book small art house films that like Fox Searchlight has because they're so expensive. Uh, we instead right now are playing The Irishman, uh, the hundred million dollar Martin Scorsese film exclusively because the multiplexes didn't want to deal with Netflix because they think Netflix is the enemy. Mm. So right now we are a small art house that can play the new hundred million dollar Scorsese film, but can't play the new Terrence Malick, for example. <laughs> That's absolutely wild i'm glad Things you're giving a leg up to uh yeah to <laughs> up-and-coming directors like martin scorsese <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh, absolutely i mean lately scorsese has been as controversial as gaspar noe oh yeah with his whole uh uh the marvel movies thing mm-hmm. yeah right. which has for saying um, that multiplexes are dominated by a certain kind of film by a certain kind of company and that that made it hard to get his film made. Like I'm, I'm, I'm weird that he has resentment about that. <laughs> yeah, um, a couple of things about that. Um, number one, um, when has when has anybody been? Un- how have people been under this delusion about the you know the intrinsic goodness of multiplex theaters? I mean, you know, they've always been a place to disseminate as much product as possible. <laughs> like. You know, I don't think that's changed. And um, the other thing is, um, you know, Scorsese 
is running into the same thing that other directors of his stature run into as they age, which unfortunately seems unavoidable, is that, you know, regardless of stature, they're not able to easily get movies made. Um, you know, it happened to Kurosawa. Um, it was really hard for him to get uh, movies put together at the end of his life, in spite of the fact that he was fucking Akira Kurosawa. Mm -hmm. um, and the same thing seems to be happening to Marty. Yeah. Well, he's just, he's, he's at that point. And I mean, I, I do get, you know, he, like he has a, uh, he, I've been watching a couple interviews with him and he, he seems to understand a, le a little bit of why the studios wouldn't take a chance. Cause it was a really expensive experimental technology to try the de-aging effect that he wanted to do on that. And, um, but he wouldn't have had to do it if it wouldn't have taken them 10 years to collect the financing in the first place. Like they said, when they first started, when they had a screenplay ready for the film, they were like, Pacino and De Niro were actually young enough that we could have just done it with makeup. And it took so long <laughs> to put the money together that they actually had to, you know, go to ILM and get this like groundbreaking digital technology, uh, thrown into it. Um, where they had to use like three different cameras with like invisible motion capture things on their faces and stuff. It's pretty crazy stuff. That seems uh, kind of the uh, yeah the long way around of solving that problem. <laughs> yeah. But it, but if you guys haven't seen it, it's amazing. It's so I good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I guess they're lucky that they could get that technology again, like due to their um, you know their their power and stature, they were able to you know still make the movie. And and you know I feel like. Um, people in the same situation without that level of stature would they would have to be like no everybody's just too fucking old there's nothing we can do about it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and and I mean he, he talks a lot about how like it, it really it wouldn't the movie wouldn't exist without Netflix's money but then we get into a whole conversation about like Netflix entering the theatrical exhibition realm because obviously their entire model was um, supposed to replace that mm -hmm. Um, but they have realized the same way that every single person who decides that they're going to disrupt an industry is that it's not that easy every single time. And they've realized that, you know, they are what it's like, it, it's almost a billion dollars in debt that they are for all of the content that they create. And they just assumed that it was going to be coming back because they have so many subscribers, but they have finally hit a subscriber peak and they're like, oh shit. We don't, we actually don't, like, how do you know how much money you made off of The Irishman, which you spent $100 million making, and probably another $40 million marketing? Mm -hmm. So it's like, how do you make that money back when everyone who's going to watch it is probably already paying you? It's kind of like this weird thing is, like, you don't know how much money it actually made. So that's why they're getting into theatrical, because they're like, well, we need to get some sort of return on investment. And the best way to do that for an individual title is for people to pay for it at a box office. <laughs> so uh, it, it's an interesting thing where like, it's just, you know, like their, their model doesn't actually make that much sense the same way that like all of those media companies pivoted to video because Facebook was like, yeah, you know, we get lots of numbers because like it counts as a view when someone scrolls by it and doesn't hit, hit it. Yeah. yeah. And uh, um, the important thing to remember about the Facebook pivot to video thing is that it was, just completely false like it was built it was an idea built from inflated data and yes. the repercussions have been just catastrophic yeah don't get me oh, yeah, started now on you like the the sort of uh lie behind basing things off of metrics it's like you can fudge metrics to say whatever you want really right well do you, uh tim do you want to tell us kind of what you mean by 
metrics for people who haven't had the misfortune to work in a corporate environment for most of their career? Oh, <laughs> uh, we should we should put this up as like a premium extra uh, on the site because uh, I don't know how deep you want to get into it, but yeah, it's it's pretty much you know what most people know about you know uh, serving the internet or um, going on uh, you know social media is that yeah you know like you're saying when you scroll past something or when you click on something or when you engage with uh, something or even leave like, you know, a, a, a flame comment on someone's post, like that all counts towards engagement. And that's what these platforms want. It's why, you know, YouTube has, you know, the uh, autoplay feature. It's why you continue to scroll exists. It's why uh, controversial content, you know, gets bubbled up to the top mm -hmm. is because these platforms don't want quality of engagement. They want quantity. They just simply don't want you to ever leave. And if that means getting you angry about something or if it means, you know, streaming 13 hours of uh, Jessica Jones or whatever, then, yeah, like, we'll, we'll we just want to keep, you know, butts in seats. And so mm -hmm. it, and metrics are a way of, you know, of, of measuring that. But the problem is, in a way, uh, metrics kind of become the tail wagging the dog. I had uh, read a quote yesterday, which was um, which I'm going to butcher, but it's something that um the way I behave uh, depends on how you like measure my my um, uh, my productivity. So it's like if you say, you know, I want people to always be watching, then I'm going to be producing a lot of content that never ends. If you want high ratings, you would produce better content but less of it. But it's a matter of you know what what are your uh, what kind of ends do you want to justify? So yeah. But yeah, I'm not a fan of metrics because of how um, myopic they are. They only count the things you can measure and disregard the rest. Yeah, and I think that is really key to the discussion that we're having today, especially in the arena of streaming media, which has become more and more important to uh, filmed and, and video content, is um, just the, the sheer... Um, the sheer number, uh, let me put it another way. Um, I think that's what's led to the, the, the fire hose of content approach that you get in uh, today. Um, I think that it's changed a lot from the, you know, the days of the, yeah, it's the, a volume game. Yeah. Um, in the 20th century, um, you know, how many, how many movies did studios put out? per year i mean like major studios uh maybe 20 25 yeah like a dozen or something yeah I'm, I'm probably going like too high just simply because you know the resources that you had to put into it and um only major studios had access to the kind of equipment resources that you needed to make like a feature film um now more people have access uh to production equipment but you know kind of the result is absolutely just disorienting it's like it's a sea of content yeah and i mean if you if you want to get into it in like economic terms it's kind of that um uh oh shoot i'm i'm forgetting the uh, uh actual name from from when i learned it in high school uh but uh it it's that content then becomes a commodity it's like i mean the um the example that I would put that I would point to is like gasoline. Like no one ever goes, "Oh, like this place has the best gas." It's like it's all <laughs> it's it's all the same. It's just a matter of like where you want to go to get it, but because the barrier of entry has been lowered, it means that it's uh a lot easier for anyone to produce content, but the problem is 
when it reaches kind of a certain um, critical mass, I guess, it's like it no longer is itself valuable in that like, you know, someone can point a phone at themselves and they're they're a video producer now. And yes. that kind of, uh, I don't want to say it devalues the rest of it, but I think like in economic terms, yes, it does. Because if you're competing for attention with video content and you know, all things being equal, meaning that it's something that has motion and sound and lasts a certain amount of time, then yeah, it's it does reduce media and culture to a commodity. Mm-hmm. Right, and 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 one thing that that is like because you know there there is also there's this idea that that barrier did keep you know certain kinds of people out of making content. So now people have there's you know there is sort of like a diversity of content that exists. But the issue again is that diversity of content just gets added to the pile of sludge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like 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 we've we've lost this idea of cuz I mean it's not like like I I do agree that there's like you know there there is like a lower barrier but there should be if we're going to have this much content what people should be investing in is also curation. Because yeah. that's one of the issues is that Netflix and these other services, a lot of the time, they will be like, look, we paid $200 to get this film student's work or whatever. And now it's on there. You know, it's a little on the lower end of things. But like, you know, they, they, they will pay a cheaper rate to get, you know, like the small film. And all of a sudden, the small indie film that might not otherwise have an audience is sitting there on Netflix, probably still not having an audience because obviously it's not going to get the banner slot. And they have no way of organizing their content other than like these very this like very strict algorithm, which again is dictated by kind of like these inflated metrics a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah, and and a lot of the time there we we don't know. Like there, it's very possible that people can pay to have a banner ad on Netflix, or it's or is it you know is it just a a coincidence that like everything that I see happens to be a Netflix original all of the time? Yeah, it's it's um, like oh, you mean advertising is like a fake version of being aware or something? It's it's. I mean, it is literally fake news in that it isn't something that is, you know, actual information that you want to know. It's someone telling you something that they want you to know. Right, right. So I I really do think that more of these places should be looking into things like programming and curation as as an answer to this because then you know that's how you actually get these small things highlighted it's one thing that i've appreciated so far about the criterion channel because i was a little annoyed when i first signed up and i was like guys you don't even have half the shit you guys have access to but what they do is they do actually pay a staff to go through and actually you know like get you some context for what you're watching um and you know actually have you watch underseen undervalued things sometimes which is just something that you will never ever find on netflix despite the fact that netflix sometimes does it like they do sometimes buy the rights to small things that they could show off they just don't because that's not really their game like again there's this weird thing where like netflix weirdly enough just because it was the first it does have some unique qualities that are good like, for example, the fact that, you know, maybe they would pay to get Martin Scorsese's film made that otherwise wouldn't get made. And it ended up being one of the best things that I saw this year. So I'm stoked mm-hmm. for them for that and that they're putting it in theaters, which is great. But it's just it's it's also a case of, you know, the fact that I have to give them credit for that kind of sucks. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> like, it's... Like, 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 like it's a sign of a, a rotting industry at that point. Like, it's just it's kind of a it's the whole thing's kind of a problem. And it, it, it's hard to not be jaded watching it from the inside. Yeah. Well, yeah. And um, let's also be clear that the film industry has always pursued profit. Um, You know, people like to talk about 
goal, um, you know, there are two particular golden ages of uh, filmmaking in the 20th century. Um, but it was always in pursuit of money. That has always been the case. Um, Artists since... have always been working against the money men, for sure. Yeah, yes. yeah. it's like you Netflix know, it's... isn't a charity. Like, if they had to choose between two films and, you know, more people are going to watch the first one, why would they put money down on the second? Yeah, and, you know, just, again, just to make it crystal clear, you know, that is that is a problem with, with capitalism and trying to make art in a capitalist system. Um, but um, the industry is changing in some interesting and also somewhat um, terrifying ways. Um, and it will be interesting to see in what direction it ends up going. Um, but to kind of bring it back to what um, started me thinking about this, um, do you guys know much about the, uh, you know, the original case, United States versus Paramount Pictures? Well, obviously I do, but why don't you explain it for our listeners? <laughs> well, how about you josh you went to film school or do, well, I need... do you know do you know what i i i need a refresher on this one though i do know the broad strokes of this idea of um uh, production companies not also being able to control um exhibition was a huge part of it because i mean if you think right now that, for example, your theatrical options at multiplexes are being dominated by a few companies. Imagine if those companies owned those multiplexes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, some and... vertical integration they can only dream of. Yeah, um, that was that was an issue um, because again, these these companies all own their own theaters. Um, there was also a practice called block booking, in which the exhibitors couldn't pick and choose uh, what movies they wanted from the production companies it was like okay well you get our a-list picture but you also get this raft of shit um so you pretty much have to take everything and obviously um you know exhibitors weren't too keen on that because you know what's the you know it's great if you get like the you know the top flight like a picture that everyone's looking forward to but you know then you get all this other crap that like nobody is going to want to come see um you know, that people wouldn't even sit through for the bottom half of a double bill. Um, and one of the things that the Paramount Decrees led to is they started a practice of um, basically like trade um, screenings where um, exhibitors would be able to see beforehand like uh, what um, what was available to purchase for, for exhibition. Um, and I'm, I, I think this is what happened with a, a movie that we talked about recently on the show, Interstate 60. Yeah, um, because oh, my it's favorite. Around, yeah, it screened around town. Tim was able to see it, but nobody wanted to pick it up. And so, you know, it just ended up uh, straight to DVD, basically. Um, and, you know, I've worked in this uh, part of uh, the industry. Um, when I was a projectionist, at one point I was working on a lot, um, basically doing like review screenings and kind of trade screenings. Um, so that was one, that was one consequence of, uh, United States versus Paramount Pictures. Um, and this was a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, and the way that that happened is the, the government, the U.S. government, um, the antitrust, um, U.S. government basically, uh, brought this case against the movie studios. Um, they gave the movie studios a little bit of time to comply, which of course they didn't 
they drag their feet. Um, and I think it's a um, trick they learned from the auto industry and the coal industry and telecom. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah. and you know, that's where the consent decree comes in. It's like, well, you, <clears throat> you, we're giving you time to comply with this. If you don't comply with it, then we're going to resume uh, prosecution. And sure enough, that's what happened. Um, it went to a higher court and um, they found in that, that court found in favor of the movie studios. So of course the U S government, they took it all the way to the top. Um, and a seven, one decision, um, led to the movie studios having to divest themselves of, you know, things like theaters and like distribution arms and stuff like that. Well, it seems um, like a solid precedent for doing the same with streaming. Well, um, and fast forward to today and, um, I was on, uh, you know, we'll say like a couple weeks ago or whatever. And I saw one of my mutual followers on Twitter saying, you know, um, RIP Paramount Decree, um, it taught me it was okay to be weird. And I was like, well, what's this about? You know, cause the, the, it sparked, a it sparked something in my memory. So what, uh, you know, what led to these news stories is that the assistant attorney general, uh, Makan Del Rahim, um, has announced that the Justice Department, um, he's part of the antitrust division, and they want to reverse the Paramount Decree of 1948, um, which to me is not particularly surprising in like the Trump administration. Um, you know, anything which, with the way that things have been going in terms of, of business and corporations, um, there seems to be this tremendous disinterest in actually reining in corporations and what they do and what they acquire. Um, I think we've seen that with Disney and Fox. Um, but yeah, so that's basically where things stand. And um, they're talking about uh, kind of, they're talking about not only reversing this decision, but also, you know, um, things might be completely different in as, as quickly as in two years. They're, they're basically giving exhibitors um, two years to get used to the new order, essentially. So that's kind of where we stand right now. Well, hey, on the plus right, side, we is, won't have is, Trump in two years. <laughs> no. which, which is, by the way, is, is just th fully... Because, I mean, right now, it's pretty disastrous to be out there, to be any kind of independent uh exhibitor is just it's it's craziness i mean like the multiplexes might like some of this a little bit more it's harder it's harder to say i mean it sounds like they didn't like it back when it happened before so maybe not but as as someone who competes with multiplexes it's it's an interesting thing where like uh in in canada for us i don't know how much this differs in the united states but we have kind of like one major chain and it's sort of like your guys' version of like AMC, I guess, would be the equivalent. But like, that's the only, imagine that was like kind of like the only chain, basically. There's mm -hmm. like one or two, and the second one is so much smaller in comparison, it doesn't even compete on any level. And those multiplexes kind of just get first come, first serve. And because technically they're not allowed to ask for exclusivity, mm -hmm. but they basically, like, they tell the distributors that, like, look, you know, we're not telling you this. They can throw like, their weight around. You, but 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 you don't want to give it to that other theater. You want to give it to just <laughs> us. And they do this all the time, which is a big problem for us because, you know, like we can't play all of a sudden, you know, if our multiplexes decide they want to dip their toes into 
foreign films, which every so often they do, mm-hmm. uh, because they're just like, they're, you know, they're so desperate to keep bringing people in. So they picked up the new Bong Joon-ho film Parasite this year, mm-hmm. even though it was like a given that we've built the art house and foreign audience. Like there hasn't been a year in the last 15 years where this, like we haven't played all of the best foreign picture nominees. And they took Parasite from us, held it exclusively, and we basically heard from the distributor that they basically bombed with it because they don't do any promotion. They bombed mm. with what is possibly the most profitable foreign film that's come out in, like, <laughs> uh, you know, other than maybe Roma in the last decade. Um, and it's this weird thing where, the you know, the, the people don't go to the multiplexes to see that. They don't put trailers up for that. They don't put posters up for it. They just dump it on a screen. And they're like, there you go. It's in there. We gave you guys more options. Um, and Which is completely disingenuous, it sounds like. Right, yeah, it, it 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 kind of is. So, um, we're in a kind of a state where like thing like the movies are actually sometimes being harmed by the multiplexes, which kind of is disheartening to see. As someone who you know, as a programmer, I'm in it because I I want people to see good movies, but they're not seeing it a lot of the time in the best setting, and the multiplexes aren't putting their weight behind them because why would they if they're playing? you know, Ford v. Ferrari or Joker at the same time. They're just not going to. It's not going to happen. Um, and it's it's led to some kind of interesting developments for us, especially when it comes to relationships with distributors, because um, some of these smaller guys are, you know, they're being courted by the multiplexes a little bit, but at the same time, they are being kind of screwed over because they're not offering them similar it's can't get too much into the details but there are certain percentages of box offices that certain people can ask for and others can't ask for and we'll say that on the higher end of this you have disney who can ask for pretty absurd percentages on their films Um, oh yeah because it's like the first week like they get you know like the majority of you know the the percentage of ticket sales and then the second week it's kind of on a sliding scale until eventually after a few weeks, like the the theater starts to make a, a profit off of it more than the, uh, right. the studio, right? Right, and 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 mul- the way the multiplexes are set up is that they offer huge percentages on that first week, especially to the bigger companies, because they want the big film that's going to bring in a lot of people and buy a lot of you know concession. That's kind of like the the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue is that Disney has gotten so used to doing that. That when Disney bought Fox, they didn't consider the fact that when they were like, when was the last time we released an independent film? Not for a long fucking time. So all of a sudden they find themselves releasing Fox Searchlight movies such as Jojo Rabbit and the new Terrence Malick, A Hidden Life. And they basically are charging the same percentages that they would charge a cinema to play like Avengers Endgame. Hmm. Um, so, and obviously the movie's just not worth that amount of money well yeah and you're not gonna get the same amount of people seeing it exactly so Avengers, so whatever so what's actually happened is that they've just squeezed independent exhibitors out of playing films um and they would literally rather it not get played in a city somewhere than offer lower standard industry standard percentages on things like they would be like yeah we would rather that terrence malick just make zero dollars in your city than give it to you for like the industry standard rate that every other major studio gives you so it's a it's a spite-based economy is what you're saying (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, that's that that's kind of what's happening, right? And I think they just because they can afford to take the hit. That's all it is. I mean, it's the same reason they put all of the old Fox movies into the vault and no longer let independent cinemas book for rep screenings of any 20th century Fox titles. Same, yeah, it's let's the same talk deal. A little bit about that because um, that is that is huge to me. And as someone who spent a lot of years um, basically going to repertory screenings, you know, places like uh, uh, the New Art, the New Bev, um, the Egyptian Theater in uh, in Los Angeles, um, which Netflix is currently trying to buy. Um, how has that affected what you do? Oh, and that that this this has been huge, and it was an interesting thing because like uh, we kind of heard rumblings about it before it happened. And we nobody was for certain, though. So mm -hmm. I so I was trying to get to the bottom of it because we play rep screenings quite a lot. And we played a lot. We played, um, I think, three Fox rep titles last year. And so we we were concerned because we were like, is this just a thing that's taken off the table? Like, if we look at a movie and it says Fox, should we just mm -hmm. be like, oh, I guess not. Um, so and I, really I, quickly, um, what kind of movies are we talking about? Um, well, last year, for example, we, I mean, like you can talk about the big ones. There's like, you know, they, they had like Die Hard, they had mm -hmm. Fight Club, they had Aliens, they had really, really big stuff, but it's like, um, it's just the entire 20th Century Fox catalog, which has been a studio since what? The 1930s? Pro I uh, believe even, uh, possibly even earlier than that, but I, I, I might be wrong. Right. So, and, and what we're talking about when we say rep is just anything that's honestly older than a year, basically. Like, we're yeah, talking about a you first can't release. Even go... oh, yeah, no, like, you, you can't correct. even. It was founded, Fox was founded in 1935. So, I'll, I'll gotcha. shut up. <laughs> <laughs> but you were saying. But, but it, it was, it's just, it's interesting because I got on the phone and I started calling. And by the way, all of our Fox uh, contacts were just fired overnight. And they didn't Ooh. tell us who their replacements were. So I was just calling the office, found a Disney contact finally. And I had to have four separate phone calls where I asked them point blank, can we book Fox titles? Can we book old Fox titles? And finally, by the third one, they said, can you get specific? And I said, can I book Aliens next month? And they were like, yeah, no, that title uh, has mm -hmm. been uh, taken taken off of the uh, the DCP list. And I was like, okay, can I book uh I, I i think the other one i asked for was uh point break i said can i book point break um and uh they were like uh no that title's also been uh taken off and so yeah sorry your shared going, cultural history is not <laughs> economically viable yeah, sorry can click. i point out can i point out that this happened um like literally on the 40th this is the year that is the 40th anniversary of the original alien like they just had a documentary come out about it uh memory yep. the origin the origins of alien and then you but you can't see now you can't see the original alien in a theater nope. in the anniversary nope. year well and and even though it's just straight up it's they're just taking the hit that's just it like there's no reason because it's it's guaranteed money like it's guaranteed and it might not it might seem like chump change to a company like Disney, but it's it's literally just guaranteed money because the way that the deal works is you have to pay them a minimum. If zero people show up to your screening that you booked, you have to pay them a few hundred dollars. And then if uh, if your screening's massive, mm -hmm. you have to pay them 
the minimum plus you know a certain percentage if you mm-hmm. achieved that percentage and it, like that percentage was over the minimum then you pay that percentage as well so like and again they are paying to ship you a dcp that they already have sitting somewhere <laughs> so like oh, so it, we're not even talking about a physical print a lot of the time no we're talking about like uh they don't no no company sends prints anymore not a single one Oh, so we're we're we're, okay. we're talking about they have 4K DCPs of or two and and sometimes for this sometimes they don't even send you sometimes you can just book the rights and say I'm gonna play like a 4K Blu-ray. We we try to not do that because I don't want to play a Blu-ray on our screen. <laughs> but like worst case scenario, I mean, it, there's it, a more convenient way a, to watch a Blu-ray. Yeah. <laughs> speaking as a former projectionist, like that is that is uh, very easy compared to running a whole print reel to reel. But <laughs> yes, yes, but yeah, like that's just it. Like all the expense that they're paying for this booking is the shipping of a DCP at most, which is you know cost twenty five bucks or something like that. And, and um, they are getting and they are getting a minimum of a few hundred dollars regardless. And sometimes you know we have screenings. And I'm sure other places that do rep screenings, you know, get upwards of thousands of dollars in a single night from a show. And mm-hmm. there are like, like something like 800 independent cinemas in the U.S. and Canada. So imagine every weekend those people are booking screenings of your titles and every single one is paying you a minimum of a few hundred dollars, you know, like every weekend. Like it's just they are turning down that money intentionally because they have to share that money and that profit off that film with an independent exhibitor. That's what they can't stand for. That's I wild. Wonder, I wonder what that number is going to be at, in five or 10 years when you say 800 <laughs> indie cinemas in, in North America. Yeah, it, if they keep getting squeezed by on, because again, that's getting squeezed on our rep options, because a lot of rep, a lot of independent cinemas, you know, like, you know, you know, you're not you're not turning a huge profit on rep stuff, but it's definitely mm-hmm. it's a nice bump if you have a weak month with your with your new releases, which are becoming more consistent when the big multiplexes are stealing the titles you should be making lots of money on or mm-hmm. you can't even book films from like fox searchlight which was like a huge place that we booked from before so it's like you're getting squeezed from three or four different angles by like two companies <laughs> wow and, and this is just kind of the state of independent exhibition at the moment and you know there's still good stuff making its way through the cracks but it's Seems like it's, it's an uphill battle, yeah. It's against all odds yeah. that you're seeing something good. D- does this issue from Disney's customary practice of uh, tending to hold their stuff in a vault <clears throat> and only releasing it at particular times? Because I think that that is what they've tended to do in particular with their with their um, animated features. Right. No. And and one thing that a lot of people have pointed out about this is they say, well, this is, you know, this is just this is this is just capitalism it's and artificial it's true scarcity. On a level that this is that this is just mm-hmm. it is it is a, you know, a, a calculated decision to, you know, um, uh, sort of control more of the market. So it makes sense in that way. But Disney is like the roided out capitalism version of this because uh, no other major studio does any of this stuff. All of these practices that I have mentioned so far are unique to Disney. Um, if you you can book any rep title for the absolute minimum percentage from companies as big as Warner Brothers and previously before Disney bought Fox from Fox. Like every other yes. major studio partakes in these practices because they make the money. Um, 
and you know they see independent exhibitors as you know a place where their movies get to keep playing because if a multiplex you know stops playing a film for example sometimes we pick stuff up second run because we want to mm-hmm. you know it's a it's a very popular film it's going to get nominated for awards or something who knows um so you know every other company or major studio sees more theaters as a good thing mm-hmm. <laughs> for some reason disney sees it as a bad thing and they see it as competition because they view rep screenings for example they're like well you know someone going and watching one of our old films that's someone not watching frozen 2 in theaters this weekend um right and and if you have the attitude that disney has towards competition i mean it doesn't seem too far of a reach to assume that disney expects that same behavior from its competitors so it's like well you know i want to make sure that i can you know uh, you know, smother in the cradle any potential competitors so that they don't do, you know, to Disney what Disney wants to do to them. Right. So. That is so... I mean... It's so unsurprising not, for Disney. Yeah, and uh, I'm, not, I'm, not a, I'm not a business person, so um, a lot of well, and, corporate practice tends to just absolutely befuddle me, but... Um, I mean, like, well, pretty... the thing I, I wanted to mention, too, is I don't know if you guys saw because, I mean, obviously, there's been this Marvel Scorsese thing and then there was a bit of response from from Feige. But the one that blew my mind the most, and I don't know if you guys caught it, but it was the one that Bob Iger said. Yes. When when, when, when he <laughs> where he was like Coppola and Scorsese are calling those films despicable. And he was like, who is he talking about? Is he talking about Ryan Coogler or Taika Waititi or, you know, just name dropping the few uh, people of color that they've hired to make their billion dollar products um, and weaponizing them for that that way and saying that actually I don't get what they're criticizing us for when they're making films that people are obviously enjoying going to uh, and they're making millions of dollars. And actually, the theater business has relatively thin margins. So a successful superhero movie actually allows the industry to distribute and exhibit other types of films. Yeah, it's like is... we're our benevolent dictator in, in that regard. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> right. And, and, and this was the case study that I used for it because coming out this December, there's going to be a giant Star Wars movie that they're going to be releasing. It's going to be huge. Mm-hmm. And because of that, no theater in our town multiplex is going to consider playing the new terrence malick which opens the same weekend or maybe the weekend before star wars but none of our multiplexes and we have like five of them are even going to consider playing the malick we are the only theater in town that would even think about playing it and it's a good film i saw it at the toronto film fest it's 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 well done mm-hmm. um yeah so i we we want to play it we want to give audiences a chance to see it so we are the only places that would even ask to play it and we can't afford to play it because of disney's rates on it so it's going to be a case of no one in our town is going to get to see the new Malik this year. Would it be because the case because that... the multiplexes will be flooded with Star Wars and Cats? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ! Yeah, uh, because those are those are going to be on four screens each. You just know it's going to happen, and so there's no screens for Malik other than ours, and we can't afford it. Yeah, and then it just becomes like this cultural tunnel or, or funnel. Where yeah, yeah so, it becomes so there there is not more distribution or more exhibition. There's not more options, which is what they seem to think it is by making so much money. Again, it's just it's more squeezing. They're like, yes, we are giving a boom to this industry, but it's a boom that's very targeted uh, at 
the profits for a single company. Yeah, I remember I was at like you know, the Grove years ago, and I can't remember what the movie was, but yeah, it was that same sort of thing where it's one movie on four screens, and just looking at the options, it's like, oh, do you want to see boy movie or girl movie? And like those are the <laughs> options. Yeah, and um, Josh, you mentioned that you're um, you're basically um, you're outside of a major city. Um, is it the kind of thing where, um, you know, cineaster, if you prefer, um, snobs and dorks, um, you can just say yourselves. hipsters. Yeah. Yeah. will um, have to drive like an hour if they want to see the new Terrence Malick, you know, and that's, that's people who are fortunate enough to live near a major city. Yes. Uh, for, for us, for our people, the closest place that will be playing the Malick will be about a two and a half hour drive. Jesus. Yikes. Yeah, and so, um, so 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 like that's why that's why our theater exists because we bring in small films and a lot of the time we do it's just if it's not owned by Disney it's it's fine like we, uh you know and and sometimes you know I I work with the owners and you know some of the owners have have different tastes they've been in the business for a long time but they kind of brought me in because they were like you're on the modern festival circuit we kind of want to bring in some of our university crowd a little bit more curation so recommends so, yeah it's exactly it's curation so like I got to play this year stunningly somehow. I convinced them to do Claire Denis' High Life. Oh, nice. Um, which is just a beautifully grotesque, small little, you know, uh, high concept sci-fi about, you know, launching uh, poor prisoners into space as like guinea pig examples. <laughs> and it, it, it's brutal. It's existential. It's horrifying to watch. And it was the best thing that I saw at the Toronto Film Fest last year. And we got to play it for two weeks. It was actually made money for us. We were kind of shocked. But like a small movie like that, again, filmed on a very limited budget by a, you know, a uh, French woman auteure uh, with, you know, a little bit of push from A24 who did put a little bit of a marketing campaign into it, but not as much as they have for other films. And like those movies can make money at our theater because when we you have one screen... You kind of just play the trailers of stuff that you're going to play. So we just played that High Life trailer for like two or three mm -hmm. weeks and people, our audience came. Nice. So it's just, you know, like there is exciting things in the independent exhibition. And again, that that only got played in uh, nearby us in Toronto in any capacity. So like, again, people would have had to drive hours out of their way to see it. They just wouldn't have seen it. So every once in a while we get stuff and we're very excited that, you know, we, we played something like we played the Aretha Franklin doc, Amazing Grace for a few weeks this year, mm -hmm. which went really well. And like, it's just a case of, uh, you know, developments that are being made where multiplexes are uh, trying to pressure distributors into not giving us stuff. And then the biggest, literal biggest distributors are just pricing us out. The combination of those two things happening simultaneously, and I, I, I know that it's not just us. I've been on the phone with other distributors, even in Ontario and in the U.S. Uh, Matt Zollerzeitz for Vulture wrote an awesome article where he talked to, I think, like 40 or 50 people, including me, about the Disney Fox rep uh, stuff that's happening. Mm -hmm. And it is a... Uh, some people went more on the like I didn't go on the record for that uh, <laughs> but there's the the woman who manages the Vancouver art house cinema she everything that she said was exactly the same thing that we're experiencing and she went on the record and said all of it and she was basically just like we are getting just completely butchered from all sides well what it sounds like uh in regards to the um uh, like the high life example that you gave um, I mean, if you wanted to do kind of a thought experiment with that, is that if you give 
um, like if you give a space to independent directors, then as you know, like a large distributor, in a way, like you're kind of losing control of the narrative because I mean, if Disney says you know, we can throw our weight around with what gets distributed, and we also make a particular kind of you know uh, kind of movie, and we can push whatever kind of culture and whatever kind of narrative we want, and we can dictate what you know what voices get heard basically then mm. if they allow it or if they you know cede control to say okay independent films can you, you can see uh you know um what's it high life you can see uh you know terrence malick movies um then all of a sudden it's the directors that have control over what gets seen and it becomes you know you might kind of cede control to you know by uh reestablishing sort of the you know, auteur uh, um, climate from for for filmmaking, and then at that point, Disney's kind of over barrel with the people who are actually making movies. Which I know doesn't sound like such a bad concept. You know, the artist having control over what what actually art what art gets created. But mm-hmm. yeah, I can see how Disney would want it to be a situation where um, you know the artists kind of come you know as beggars to. You know, to to their distribution system to to say, you know, please can I get my my film shown? And uh, you know, the distributor becomes the arbiter of culture at that point. And that right, yeah. well, and and also it's worth noting that we've already talked about how Disney doesn't have an interest in things that even though they make money, they don't make enough money. Mm-hmm. So like that's going to be very harmful to you know smaller films that again High Life made money, but mm-hmm. is that enough money that it's considered a success to disney no their current model is we make less projects and we but we spend 300 million on each one and we guarantee that billion dollars every time that's kind of like the goal with them but this makes very small projects much harder to get made which is kind of like exactly what scorsese was upset about (laughs) and which people Mm -hmm. seem to interpret as him being just like old man yelling at clouds yeah uh, but but yeah, if you're you know a, a large you know multinational corporation and you want to employ as few people as possible, and you know ask me how I know, um, then uh, <laughs> yeah, like like Disney doesn't want to spend the time you know hiring like you know a full time coupon cutter, you know to to make sure that like they're nickel and diming you know all these these things that are just like beneath their interests. Like they want to focus only on the things that return like the you know, the maximum amount of money for their investment. They don't want to deal with a thousand little projects because that just becomes complicated and, you know. Well, right. and not to mention that with Disney, like, the branding is so strong that um, it it also isn't really in Disney's interest to kind of, like, to diversify the kind of content that they have, especially if it has, I mean, Disney has its subsidiaries, but it's stuff like ABC and ABC Family, yeah, it's like they yeah. can manage a certain amount of things. Like they can control the narrative on a certain amount of things. But like once you start to open it up and take a free hand with this, then you kind of lose control over it. And then, you know, I think from an existential point of view for Disney, that's a huge problem because then, you know, they aren't the ones who get to say, you know, what goes and what doesn't or, you know, how people can feel about things or what media people can even be exposed to. Right. It, it really is just they are... A, putting a very friendly face on flattening culture and because it's popular which it is to be fair it is it is popular but Scorsese also mentioned he's just like 
it is popular when it's the only thing that people have an options to see. <laughs> like they're gonna go to the things that they have options to see. Yeah. Well, it's I don't like, want to see girl movies, so I guess I'll see boy movie. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> or just stay home. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. So it's so it's just like you know, like you know, it it, it is like a like a, uh, a cart and horse situation at that point. Yeah, or it's a Hobson's um, choice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it'd be like, yeah, you can watch any movie you want as long as it's the current Disney movie. But hey, we we I I will say to you guys that on the on the good news front, The Irishman is doing quite exceptional at our theater. Um, Yay! For um, you know, like it's 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 doing a very stellar amount of 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 people coming to check it out. Um, so it's good it's good for him. But it is funny that none of our multiplexes would take it. They were basically like, "No, screw you, Netflix. You're ruining the theatrical model by not giving us a three month window exclusively with your film." Can uh, you talk uh, a little bit about that? The um, which uh, um, has been a huge uh, point of contention in the age of Netflix. Uh, the release window, like how does how window? does that af- yeah how does that affect um, uh, distribution? Uh, I mean, it it does have an effect for sure. I mean, I think the multiplexers are more concerned about it just because they have a deal set in place with every other studio. And if they cave to Netflix and give them a shorter window, then the other studios will ask for a shorter window. I think that that's where the multiplexes are coming from on it. Why is Um, the why is the uh, the length of the window so important? The length is important because it's people have to see it at a theater for a certain amount of time. Right. And and the, the standard window is typically about three months. Now, movies do less than that, but it's sometimes it's only when, like, a movie bombs and it only plays in two weeks and then it's out, you mm-hmm. know, w- you know, within, you know, a month from there, it's probably already on Blu-ray or on digital or whatever because they, they had to, to, you know, make some more money off of it while people are still talking about it, hopefully. But right. a successful film, they have to give the multiplexes a uh, exclusive three-month window where they promise them that it won't be available on rental it won't be available on streaming and it won't be available on like physical blu-ray dvd that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. um so and you know sometimes they make that window longer because they want to keep maximizing the theatrical profits if it's like still doing well like something like joker for example they're gonna they're gonna delay that blu-ray for a while well they want Um, they want the the shootings to keep happening (laughs) exactly because you know there have been so many so many (laughs) Uh, well you know it gives them more of a chance to make back their money too if you know the studio is taking the lion's share from the first exactly so especially when you're talking about companies that take huge percentages where you're right by the time they hit the fourth and fifth week like Mm -hmm. that's when they're actually going to make their highest amount of box office gross on the film a lot of the time um so like that's their concern um and netflix i think was going to offer them maybe like a month and a half before it hits Netflix. Right. Uh, and the multiplexes said that wasn't enough. So then they went with independent theater chains and they offered them three weeks for independent theater chains. But also keep in mind, only three weeks for major um, major cities. So it's actually one week and two weeks only windows before Netflix for uh, for like us. Like we only got a one week window. And it's doing amazing considering the fact that it's going to be on Netflix in a few days. Mm-hmm. Like we're having a massive opening weekend for it. Uh, because again, some people, a lot of the time, sometimes if stuff's available at home, some people still want to see it on the big screen. It definitely does have some effect, but it has less effect than I think the uh, 
multiplexes are getting so scared about because for example we played roma last year it was the first netflix film we played Mm -hmm. and we didn't get it until two weeks after it was on netflix and we still made money on that film for three or four weeks like it was a successful film despite the fact that we didn't open it till it was already available for people to watch at home but people were some people we saw were watching it at home and they were like i just it doesn't it didn't feel right like i couldn't read it sometimes (laughs) they were like uh so it was it was it's interesting um this argument about the window but in my opinion like sometimes we're still playing films like sometimes we don't get a film second run until it's almost already on blu-ray and people are still watching it so yeah or like even 40 years later some people want to watch the same movies can you imagine (laughs) 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 Uh, who wants to see these old ass xenomorph movies who gives a shit yeah it it made zero cultural impact i tell you that Hey, for, for, for Halloween, I got to program a double feature of uh, Christine and the Blob, the 80s remake of the Blob. Yeah. And oh, nice. We had, a, we, we had a huge turnout for our horror <clears throat> double feature, so I was pretty shocked because I didn't think that those movies were necessarily the most popular horror movies. Uh, but people will. Like, if you, if you can, you know, actually curate, you know, two movies you think are good and you actually market it in a way that people want to see it. Like, they will be like, yeah, this movie's available on Blu-ray, it's available at home, I can probably stream uh, both of these. It doesn't matter. Like, people will be like, I want to have that night out. Yeah. Right. The uh, Yeah, the- um, that's another interesting question, is the uh, kind of the... And this has been the case since the advent of television. Um and I don't know if it's been a constant decline or if it's uh, seesawed or not. I haven't had the chance to look it up. But um, the loss of theatrical audiences to first television, then um, home media like VHS and DVD and now streaming. Mm-hmm. Um, has has it been like just like a consistent decline or have things kind of leveled off uh in different periods or is uh theatrical exhibition just going to become completely like hollowed out with uh companies like uh netflix and disney throwing their weight around i think theatrical exhibition honestly is is on its downward spiral they the the next step honestly is kind of like what they do in europe which is making theatrical exhibition uh, kind of like a government-funded art service, um, which is what some places in, in European countries do, where it's a theatrical exhibition for, like, like independent film a lot of the time is actually considered kind of a, like, like a museum uh, in some of those countries. That's interesting. <laughs> uh, that That's kind of like the next step, I think, for that kind of stuff, because it is going down, and the streaming boom has made more people likely to stay stay home i mean there's a lot of people who still go to the movie theaters but i i mean as someone who works in exhibition i can tell you that a lot of the people going if they're not going to the disney films or you know they are they are very old people most of the time uh like like our 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 profit margins are very uh filled out by uh people for example who really love the film green book and would take their old friend to see Green Book week after week after week after week. So I, and I, I, I you know, I just, I, I do got to say like that is kind of, that is the demographic that is keeping a lot of independent cinemas alive. 
uh like we're we're playing downton abbey alongside the irishman and like downton abbey has been an absolute like you would think it's a disney film the way that we're playing it uh but i mean eventually that audience is you know they're they're not going to be with us for too too long here (laughs) obviously so there is something that people have to figure out and i think that the streaming places are trying to give people a lot of options for you know, sort of like younger people. I mean, even my parents, I don't think they watch anything that's not on Netflix anymore, basically. Um, so luckily they have me to curate their Netflix experience sometimes. I will tell them, hey, there's this really small independent film that I can't believe Netflix has that you should check out. And they will. And they'll, you know, but they just, right. you know, they wouldn't find it otherwise. <laughs> but yeah, I, I do think that the theatrical model, and I think what Disney is doing is trying to find a way to make the theatrical give the theatrical model model like more longevity to it mm-hmm. it's just unfortunate that that longevity has to come at the expense of just like taste and culture <laughs> and and you hey know, pick just... one you know <laughs> <laughs> that... right and it's it's kind of an interesting reflection of the um kind of the 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 studios as they were in the 60s where the movies became bigger and bl- and more bloated uh, in a kind of a desperate bid to get people to keep coming to the theaters. Um, this, it was yeah, we, de- of- we we definitely still talk about all those movies for sure. You know, <laughs> like a like a early 1960s, like, Cinerama three-hour thing that, like, it had, like, you know, one international actor and one American actor. And I, I can't even think of... I'm, there's something that I'm trying to get the name of, but I can't even remember the name of it. Well, you have but- stuff like... Um, <laughs> you had these these big musicals that nobody liked i mean or you had stuff like hello dolly which now like um uh you know it has camp value um you know the <laughs> last time i saw it a few years back i remember it played at the egyptian and it was like it, i've never seen so many gay men outside the kylie minogue concert that i went to um so you know you could you could you know, book something like that, but who's seeing like Alexander starring Richard Burton? That movie sucks balls. <laughs> you know, um, Cleopatra kind of has some camp value. Um, you know, uh, there was another movie. It was early seventies, but kind of in the same spirit. Um, a movie we covered on the show, um, Lost, the musical Lost Horizon. Mm. You know, nobody fucking saw that, and that that's that's a massive production. Um, I mean, nowadays, um, it's slightly different in that you have these huge blockbusters with kind of a built-in audience. Um, I think we've certainly seen it on social media, like the loyalty to like Marvel, like as a brand. Um, Well, they've also ingeniously pivoted to obsessive geekdom at the same time as a way to, uh, you know... mm -hmm get those people turning out and then obviously you know it's it's kind of like an old old thing to say that people get annoyed at now but like they 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 have serialized it to the point where like you have to go every two or three months to check out the new episode every single time and now they're saying straight up that if you don't have disney plus and you're not watching the spin-off television shows you're not going to get the plot of certain movies so like it's just it's literally become TV. Yeah, it's, it's, well, now. it's kind of like that Onion article about you know the nation sort of dutifully lining up to watch the latest Star Wars movie, and just like <laughs> yeah, let's just get this over with. Baby Yoda, <laughs> baby Yoda, <laughs> fuck that thing. 
I Has mean, anybody watched The Mandalorian? Well, I don't have Disney Plus. No. I'm not giving them any money. Um, yeah, no, I don't have any money either. <laughs> I, I will not spend a dime on Disney Plus until they get the original, genuine, one and only family band on the platform. Yeah, I mean, I I tried searching for "Song of the South." It's not on there. I don't I don't get it. <laughs> but uh, I'm interested in the the thing, uh, Josh, that you had said earlier about um, uh, sort of European uh, nations sort of nationalizing film uh, chains as uh, sort of a a museum for for um, I guess. Uh, for for visual arts, film uh, art, yeah, yeah, right. Well, yeah, because it's just to keep it's it's the idea of it sort of like as a historical institution almost now. Yeah, well, I mean, part of it it makes sense because a lot of the time, if you've gone to a museum that has, um, you know, like audiovisual content, it's it it doesn't seem like for the most part museums know how to present that because it's kind of like oh, a painting hangs in a gallery. A uh, movie is like a painting that moves. Uh, put that in the gallery, <laughs> but the experience is always horrible. It's it's yeah. always like you're looking at other static art, and like you hear a video playing somewhere else, but like it's just sort of this background noise that you aren't really aware of, or well, if like there, or it's a thing where it's like, yeah, you and some stranger stand next to each other and listen on these headphones, and it's like it's not a, an ideal environment for presenting. You know, like uh, for preventing films of any any kind, I feel. Well, I think that um, if you're fortunate, and we are being um, either living in LA or LA adjacent, if you're fortunate, um, when we're talking about a, a museum, <clears throat> when we're talking about a museum film experience, we're talking about something like the Hammer, which um, uh, works hand in glove with the UCLA Archive, and they have a very nice um, theater, a nice screening room. Uh, where you can see properly presented uh, films, often often actual prints, uh, thanks to the archive. Um, now, I I did not know about this um, concept of kind of museum curation that happens in Europe. Uh, I presume that it would probably cl- be closer to the Hammer experience than to say um, video installation. Mm. Yeah. Oh man, um, I got a gripe with video. No, yeah. Because basically, what I all I was mentioning because I, I I haven't been there myself, but I had some people I know who were over there. I know some people who worked over there a little bit in programming, and and part of what they were they're doing over there is they the governments basically bought independent cinemas and re refurbished them as sort of just cultural institutions where you can see like old French films, mm-hmm. and you can see and and a lot of time you can see new art French films that are just the you know they couldn't get a theatrical release in a multiplex so they're being subsidized to get played here and the ticket prices are pretty reasonable and i think they actually just give you like with your like citizenship card they just give you like a like a very discounted rate basically so it does kind of bifurcate uh it, uh cinema experience to like popular culture and high culture yes yeah. sort of yeah. <laughs> i mean as long as there's a place for it that's a thing that yeah, it seems that, like the that, that's lining. what they've done. Just because, like, the market obviously for that those kinds of films sometimes is just you know it is less sometimes. Sometimes it just can't survive. Yeah. Um. So, th- so that's what they've done to kind of like get around that. Um. Because it's going to be a place that I think a lot of countries are eventually going to be at at a certain point. Um. And and people I think are going to miss a lot of being you know not being able to see certain kinds of. Uh, films at a at a certain point yeah i mean i I, I guess um, the question is like do you create 
you know these um artistic spaces as sort of a um uh i don't know what the word is like a a a safe space i guess if you will for independent cinema that isn't surviving due to market forces or is it better to to try and find a way to integrate them with the uh, existing you know popular film like the, right. the motivations of those of the companies pushing popular film you know i'm looking it up now and um uh the library of congress uh does screening events um it looks like they showed um the irishman that was weird <laughs> in february 2020 they're going to show uh in the heat of the night with uh Cindy poitier and rod steiger um nice well yeah because uh, i would say the u.s and canada both have a lot of film archives and those archives are a lot of the time subsidized by um you know certain foundations and governments and stuff like that that um uh and then they they lend those film prints out to you know sometimes they lend them out to in independent uh you know third parties but sometimes also they do have screening rooms and they they play them for people um, like like the Academy Archive and stuff like that too, and like we we yes. have one that our our Tiff Bell Lightbox has has uh, which is where kind of like the home of the Toronto Film Fest year round. They have a, an archive with like three thousand film prints. Now it's a, I'm I'm a little salty at them because they don't have very uh, achievable rental prices for their mm. film prints, which to me kind of defeats the purpose of having an archive. But yeah, it does. <laughs> uh, but if you live in Toronto. They, they they just play those prints all the time. Like 95% probably of what you can see there that's old is probably mm -hmm. on a print. That's cool. As Again, as a, as a former projectionist. <laughs> um, man, if you want to talk about old people at screenings, like go to an Academy <laughs> screening on Wilshire in LA. Jesus Christ. Like a friend of mine uh, once went to a screening of The King and I and he said he, he just felt like going up to people and saying, this is the last film you'll ever see. <laughs> Oh, no. Just because everybody was like just fucking morbid. Yeah, well, I, I got this. I saw I saw Alexander's ragtime band there, uh, starring Tyrone Power, and oh my god, like it was like being in a mausoleum. <laughs> that's that's also the audience, and we can't underestimate them either because the thing about them is that they make things single handedly popular. Yes, and they are more shared in the demographic of the Academy voter than any other age group. So. If, if if you watch what's popular with them, you will have a better idea at what's going to the Oscars than yes. just by watching what's popular because you'll see a lot of commentary on like, you know, oh, there's this cool independent film that's going to get nominated and instead it's going to be Glenn Close and The Wife. People are like, what the fuck is The Wife? Uh, I could have told you what The Wife was because it played for three goddamn months because people wouldn't. Jonathan Price and Glenn Close are in it. 100% they'll show up. Bill Nighy is in it. 100% they will show up. Oh, Bill uh, Anthony awesome. Hopkins. Those are all awesome John actors. I mean, maybe the movie is, uh, you know, just uh, senior bait, but. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, th this year, the one to watch out for, uh, Judy with Renee Zellweger, Judy Garland movie. Oh, well, That's of course, the, th because. That is, that is their pick of the year. <laughs> because boomers and silent generation people are going to love a, movie, a biopic about Judy Garland. Yeah. Yep. So, like that's that's definitely the one to watch watch out for at the uh, the the awards this year. That everyone's going to be like, "Wait, Judy? Okay." That is hilarious. Everyone thought it was okay, I guess, in terms of quality, but mm -hmm. they're gonna they're gonna make it single handedly. Well, yeah, that's popular. the thing is, like a lot of these movies, um, you know, they're fine. They're like kind of they're like kind of crappy to fine. You know, rarely are they yeah. you know barn burners, but. That is so funny, though. Um, 
I wanted to talk a little bit about um, some of the industry response to kind of the, the looming repeal of the uh, the Paramount decrees. and um, Right, which, case... which, by the way, because we haven't talked about it as much as the other stuff, but like that deal is just going to exacerbate every problem we've already mentioned here. Like all it's doing is giving those studios more control um, over every single thing we've already talked about today. And right now, they're, they don't have a lot of forces like uh, you know, keeping them at bay already. And they're talking about giving them less forces to keep them at bay. Yeah. So and like that, like that's the main concern here with all of this. Yeah. And I really want to highlight um, kind of this, uh, what, what one thing underlying it is this really American disease of un, unswerving faith in the free market uh, to quote unquote, uh, you know, revitalize competition and innovation. Well, I mean, from American point which, of which view, is, like, which is just crazy. It's insane. Yeah, you have to ask. Yeah. Like, I think that this deregulation in particular, I mean, is going to somehow make more competition. Yeah, Jen, you're you're framing that as like an American point of view, but I mean, you have to ask yourself, who are the people who are like actually proffering that point of view? Like, I think that you're incorrectly buying into the notion that it is a populist idea, and perhaps it's just one that's you know, put forth by people who stand to benefit by it. No, no, no. Be like, was was I not clear when I said American disease that I find worship of the free market, like, just absolutely disgusting and something which has made uh, the world worse? I'm not saying whether or not you're for or against it. I'm saying whether or not it's something that is uh, legitimately a popular opinion. Well... Um, I'm saying it can't. Oh. There's a lot of there's there's a lot of people who believe it, but I also think there's a lot of propaganda out there with people who have money. Yeah, the interest that, in it. That, so. Yeah, well, that's what yes, I think is the, the situation. Well, um, and I'm coming at this from the point of view of somebody who's raised in a conservative family of political junkies with like very conservative ideas, where you know, like Milton Friedman is a god, um, and therefore the assumption is just. You know, of course, like everybody loves, you know, capitalism and individual choice and the invisible hand. Um, all these things are unallied goods. Yeah, again, um, that's everybody. That's like the silent majority dodge. Like it's yes, it's not um, necessarily yeah, I, true. Yes, I understand. I I understand what you're saying now, and I'm glad that you clarified because I think that 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 is a very important uh, point to make. But um, jumping off of that, I want to. Uh, share with you guys a quote from uh, the uh, head of Kino Lorber, uh, the distribution company. Um, mm -hmm. He kind of struck a note against the rest of his industry of being like very positive about, um, you know, the repeal of the, the Paramount decrees. And um, uh, here's, here's what he said. Um, we live in a different universe than distributors who deal with chains. Our independent art house venues are a resilient and feisty bunch who also impose their own territorial and other rules. Because they're so close to their customers who are often subscribers or members of the theater's film societies, they won't be That's bullied true. and don't need to block book crappy films to get presumed blockbusters, which they typically don't want in any case. Um, so that's one thing. And then another thing that he said... Um, Basically echoing uh, Assistant Attorney General uh, Del Rahim, and uh, I believe I pulled this uh, whole block of quotes from The Hollywood Reporter. Um, and this is the uh, pro-deregulation part of his quote. 
I think the salutary effect of this will nudge indie art houses closer to year-round festival programming models and encourage them to more cogently build encourage them more cogently to build their membership base. Being closer to their customers arms them against economic bullying. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes and no. Yeah. I, was I mean, gonna how say, does that do... strike you, Josh? Mem- membership programs are very, very helpful, and we do have one. We offer, we kind of just, like, we give people, they pay 12 bucks a year, we give them a little laminated card, and then they get really cheap tickets every time they come. Like, it's like $8 tickets. 12 bucks a year? That's a good-ass deal. So, no, yeah, they gotta come, they gotta come three times a year, and they pay off their, um, their membership. So, like, and we have people who come every week, so mm-hmm. they save a lot of money, um, and they can, a lot of the time we will pick up like a film, you know, like if, if there is like a medium or a bigger sized film that like, you know, is, is a little bit for our audience, like a British drama of some sort, like Downton Abbey, for example, you know, they'll wait because they could watch it, you know, for $8 rather than the, you know, 14 or whatever it is now at our multiplexes. So you're saying um, the solution to save theaters against, uh, streaming services does offers kind of a subscription model. Yeah, and and, and it, it does work. Like it does, like we have we do have a lot of active members and we sell, you know, a lot of memberships per day mm. for people discovering the theater for the first time. And it, it does help us get returning customers. But I gotta say, like, it's definitely not enough. Like if they're if they're talking about again, we're saying we're having problems while also doing that. And we are playing catering to our guys and playing smaller films and doing our own advertising and promotion for those smaller films so that they do succeed. So we are already doing all of this, everything. And it is still what these distributors and companies are doing is still harmful. Um, So if they want to exacerbate those harms and they're just like, yeah, the independent cinemas, you know, they've lasted this long. (laughs) <laughs> they, they they got things that they can do to counteract this, but it's like, I don't know what independent cinemas they think aren't already doing that. It's what they're doing already. And we're saying, ouch, already. <laughs> so, like, uh, I don't necessarily understand what he's getting at with that point there. Yeah, the quote uh, kind of begs the question of, um, well, I mean, it certainly causes me to ask, like, okay, like, what, um, which pies do you have your fingers in that you think this is a positive, uh, um... Uh, development um because well yeah because because it it sounds like they're saying they're they're saying it's just it's not that bad that's like (laughs) like that's just all they're saying they're not actually naming a way that it's more helpful in some capacity yeah because um i i think um you know within that feel like kino lorber is pretty you know within that small pond is a fairly substantial player you see their names and a lot of stuff um yeah they and they buy the, the rights to some interesting films that like deserve to you know get, get seen and we we book from them sometimes they're a little expensive for us but that's mm-hmm. that's only because we're a canadian distributor so we have to pay american dollars right so that kind of hurts us a little bit but uh like for american cinemas i'm sure kino lorber is like a, a really huge like company that they book from regularly yeah and um it seems like the dissenting voices are mainly coming from uh, from Judging from what I was reading um, in the trade press, um, much smaller uh, theaters and uh, kind of chains of uh, mm. exhibitors, um, they don't seem as as sanguine uh, about the whole thing, um, mainly because uh, one of the things they're very they're concerned about is the return of block booking, 
Um, they're afraid of being obligated to take uh, certain pictures uh, with what right. they want with what they would actually like to book. Right. Yeah. Like that's that's definitely not. I mean, they they are right that that doesn't affect independent exhibitors as much because we just we, you know, we are not going to ask them to try to book like Joker first run, so we can't also be forced to take like Motherless Brooklyn because of that. <laughs> uh, so like that that really doesn't affect us very much, and because a lot of the distributors we deal with are so small that they, I don't even think that they could try to make us block book. I mean, they they might, I guess. There, it, it, it's theoretically possible that smaller distributors who you know mostly buy the rights to independent films and distribute them theoretically, they could ask us. You know, if you want Parasite, you're also going to have to take you know like this uh, this very small French film that no one's heard of. Like technically, I guess that could happen, but uh, we haven't seen that yet, so hard to hard to say for sure. Because at the moment, you just you kind of work out a deal with the distributor, and a lot of the time, we are loyal to our distributors because you know if they gave us a big film mm-hmm. throughout the year, if we have an empty slot, you know we'll we'll ask them, hey, do you got anything you that you got that needs a screen? Mm-hmm. And sometimes they'll tell us something that's small and we might not normally play. But as long as we put the trailer up and we put the poster up for a few weeks, you know, like a handful of our members will show up and it'll be worth playing most of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the issue is just when distributors kind of get a little, when they start getting pushed around by the multiplexes and being told that, no, you have to give us this film and you have to give it to us exclusively. And then we don't promote that film at all in our town because why would we promote something that the multiplexes are playing? Mm-hmm. And then the film ends up bombing. Right. Which is which is something that has been happening a lot in particular this year for us, which which we always feel bad about because it's like we think that a lot of it's happened to good films. It happened to Parasite, which is Mm -hmm. a film I love. I think it's amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just it's really unfortunate that that's kind of like the relationship that people are having with this kind of stuff. And it also sucks because we didn't get to mention it very much. But I don't know about for if this is the same for you guys in the U.S., but our multiplexes have terrible terrible presentation standards oh well we're a little biased where we are so okay yeah Yeah, um god we could do an entire other fucking episode about quality of exhibition um yeah i was just reminded of it because i brought up mother's brooklyn there which is a film a dreadful film by the way i saw it at tiff last year and i i went to it because i i don't dislike ed norton and i was kind of interested to see what he would do it's a great book Mm -hmm. uh he basically butchered it but but he had a really interesting thing that he pointed out um when he was doing the press tour for it which is that it is true that he did make like you know kind of like an old school noir on a on a budget he shouldn't have had nowadays (laughs) and he called in every favor he could to get it made and uh it did it did bomb (laughs) and uh one thing he pointed out while he was doing it is he says part he was turning his eye towards the multiplexes and he did because he said he he mixed the film and color corrected the film actually in a local multiplex Hmm. and he said he he called them out on something that is something that we've noticed a lot too which is that they were using intentionally cheaper bulbs Mm -hmm. to lower the um sort of brightness of the picture and then also as they do all the time every time i go to a multiplex and half the reason i stop going sometimes they uh they left the 3d filter on which dimmed the image even more so he's sitting (laughs) in there color he's color correcting his film with dick pope like one of the most well-regarded cinematographers alive 
and Dick Pope's like, I can't, I can't even see my movie that I shot. <laughs> so he had to, he had to go out and buy a new bulb and install it in their projector. And he was like, this is just the standard multiplex presentation. Half the time when our projectionist goes, he leaves the movie and asks them, can you let me up into the booth? It's 20% out of focus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, um, and, um, I can speak to that a little bit from my experience, even though I am, you know, again, I'm like, 20 years out of date with current exhibition practices, but I think I can speak to where it um, came from is with the rise of the multiplex and um, all the reluctance to hire like a really dedicated um, projectionist. I think the, right. the technical, the, the technical skills of being a projectionist are something of a lost art because there was a point when they just started training um you know, kind of floor employees to be able to, you know, quote unquote, like push the buttons. Um, <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's a hundred percent. Like uh, you go to any multiplex at any given time. The only people who actually know how to make adjustments to the projector, like, and understand it, mm -hmm. it's, it's like one manager on the floor in a given shift watching like 12 projectors. Yeah. And I remember um, when I was a, I was a projectionist at the, the, I'm sure long gone quad in, uh, in Westwood. California, you know, I was managing, um, four, four screens and I'd basically, you know, go wow. from theater to theater to check them. But, um, it was cause I gave a shit. I think that, you know, for <laughs> yeah. the most part, it's like, well, it's up on the screen and there's a picture and like, it's mostly in focus. It's, it's fine. Yeah. Um, and it's certainly, yeah. Well, and, and, and I mean, again, that's also, again, just, that is the corp, like the more, uh, corporate cutting corners aspect of exhibition. Yeah, it's like a movie's a movie. Which, which again, it's all the same. What do you care? Right, right. And probably and, and um, some technical aspects have been taken out of the equation because, um, I mean, you know, a big innovation for multiplex theaters was um, the platter system um, where you could basically, yep. instead of having to... Um, be there the whole time um, switching reels between two projectors. You basically built the print onto a big ass platter that ran onto another platter. And then you didn't have to be there for the changeovers. Um, right. You could just let the whole film run all at once. Exactly. Yeah. We have, we have, we have one of those for our old uh, uh, film projector that we have. Like when we play some of our projectionist personal prints, he, he a lot of time plays them on the platter. Cause he likes to a lot of the time go in and, and watch it's it. rare to see a film print. Yeah. He likes to go in and sometimes watch it like some of the time. Uh, so he, he puts it up on the platter, but also uh, the other big development was obviously switching from prints to DCPs Yes, where you're just sending out hard drives and then you can schedule films to play on it. Like, like they're a playlist Mm -hmm. uh, so you just put the three digital trailers and then you put up the feature presentation and then you start the movie and you don't have to touch the projector all day once you've turned mm -hmm. it on and turn it off with DCPs. Although one interesting note that I heard about this from this projectionist that I work with was that when they made that changeover, mm -hmm. all the distributors said, you know, we'll give you a little time to like switch from film to DCP. And then they didn't. They said overnight. <laughs> it was like, I think Django Unchained was the last thing he said he played on print. Um and overnight hitting 2013, they were like, yeah, you need to have a digital projector like two weeks from now. Uh, so they had to drop $100,000 on a digital projector. Mm. Uh, they have it now. And then they said, but we're going to save you so much money in the long run because we're not we're not striking prints. We're not paying the shipping of prints. We're just, DCPs are insanely cheaper to, you know, just to file on a hard drive and ship those out. They saved tons of money. And then they didn't actually 
transfer that savings over to any exhibitors. No, of course they didn't. Everything still costs the exact same. In, in fact, they raised their percentages instead. <laughs> well, that was something that I remember from when digital comics became a thing where they ended up costing about the same. And you're like, how when like there's no distribution and no publishing? How is it that um, you know, it still has you know, pretty much the same cost to it? Um, I think yeah. it was uh, Jim. Maybe it's not Jim. Uh, Zub. Jim Zub, I want to say, is his name. He had a whole breakdown on like what the costs are, which is unfortunate because it's like there there are new costs that take up everything that we didn't even know about. So it's like you know, uh, one step forward, two steps back. It seems like. Um, just for my own edification, I might cut this out because people probably aren't. Um, interested. Oh, pe- people stopped listening a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> you have such faith in the program. Um, cut that out. When- um i have very limited experience with um with dcp it was coming it was coming into the game about right around the time i was kind of phasing out of even working even on the periphery of the industry um how like so you basically when you get a new a new film you basically get it shipped you basically get a hard drive shipped to you yeah and and there there are special hard drives that uh project the projector can like kind of like uh, take in sort of like a floppy disk almost mm-hmm. but like so you you insert that they they give you multiple versions of the film like if you're playing a 3d version you're playing a closed caption version any other language version things like that yeah, from a technology point download. of view it's pretty cool yeah and then and then you yeah you just hit you just hit the download ingest button it basically it goes into your giant you know multi-terabyte system and mm-hmm. then fr- from there it's it's literally as easy as just building a playlist like you go you have a list of all the trailers you've ingested you have a list of and you can make sound cues like you can set up everything on a schedule. So you're like hit the coming soon uh, ad that, you know, f- that we've made for our own theater. And then you put the ple- three trailers in a row and then you put the sound up a little bit for the feature hit feature presentation. And then the the actual film starts and you can also cue in so that they'll a lot of time give you the runtime of the film and like when the credits start and this and then you can program it in turn the lights to half up when credits start mm-hmm. at the exact time and like that kind of stuff so and you can just put it all on a schedule like once you've done your scheduling for the week you've confirmed all your films you put them into the system mm-hmm. uh like that's it you just set up you just go through and you look at your schedule for the week and you're like well this film plays at this time this time and this time done you just you just have the this playlist starts at this runtime and that or at this showtime and mm-hmm. that's it so digital projection has made things super easy and why they've gotten rid of a lot of staff is because you know yes. they really need one person setting it up but they just don't have anyone on staff to like actually care about any of that stuff and because they don't care audiences have stopped caring mm-hmm. yeah, it, yeah a lot of people don't even know it gets back to the same problem of like you know letting the algorithm uh you know dictate right. curation where it's like, right. yeah, it's, we figured out you know, a way to optimize, you know, things in the cheapest form possible that requires the fewest amount of employees and the fewest amount of, you know, overhead. And it's, you know, it kind of gets it there. It's, you know, it's it's MP3s of cinema, if you want. That's <laughs> <laughs> showing, showing movies in a lossy format. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's like, hey, it's a lot faster and cheaper. Let's do it that way. Shouts out B-Movie TV. <laughs> right yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's uh but i mean that's true because uh, well yeah like it's it's content like ripped from youtube <laughs> right yeah and um, and it is on a digital playlist it just plays you know and interrupts itself and 
moves on to the next, uh, you know, lossy yeah. encoded film. But ooh, that kind of that that really does tie into um, uh, the presentation of of streaming media, and I feel like we could get into this really like pretentious like art discussion about um, kind of uh, the the art of the edit. And um, I think that the if I were to pick uh, an edit of the decade, it would be the uh, hi well, folks. Call it yeah. Let's call it the perfectly cut scream. Yeah, it's um, the way that commercials perfectly cut will, silent scream. Yeah, the way that um, commercials will barge into whatever movie that you're watching on like Roku streaming. Um, yeah, <laughs> like I talked about it on uh, when we discussed Interstate 60, where I thought that they were making an artistic decision to cut to black, and it was just a cut to black before a commercial. Um, yeah, before, your content um, will resume after these important messages. Or like the other the other day, I was I was watching uh, Love and Mercy, um, the Brian Wilson biopic from a few years ago on Roku streaming. Oh. And, um, okay, that that is that, that is Paul Dano in it, right? Yes, as Wilson. It's yeah, okay. it's it's I, not bad. It's it's all right. I usually hate biopics, but this one was was it's okay, you know. Um, and you'd be at a quiet moment of anguish of Brian Wilson struggling with his own, um, you know, fragmented mental state, and then you'd cut to a commercial. It's really loud. And know? then here's yeah. Now here's an ad for Nugenics. Yeah, um, and you get these very weird hard cuts. What are what, what? Where are you guys watching this stuff? I don't get any of this stuff, but I guess it's mostly because I just use Criterion and Shutter Channel, and there's no commercials on it. Oh, I'm right, I'm um, hopelessly addicted to the Roku uh, streaming device because yeah, um, yeah, because in a way, like it it is um, you know sort of democratizing of content in that it's like if you know two things about you know working a web page you can set up your own channel and publish it on the roku um and people have done that a varying um uh yeah a varying uh, uh aptitude i guess yeah like there's some that i really this is the future of theatrical exhibition. Right, right yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, like there's, some, there's some channels that just plain don't exist anymore, but for you know, a brief shining moment, there's a channel dedicated only to um, uh, Star Trek miniatures gaming. And yeah, it was like you know, someone had a passion about this thing, and there's a channel on it that it's you know, now defunct, but there's so many like, odd things like that that I, I'm just endlessly fascinated by. Yeah, and um, the 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 real um, like our real um, you could call it our uh, our favorite or our bet noir is a B movie TV which we talk about regularly on the show. I think because we want to induct others into the the shared madness. The shared madness, yeah. But yeah, it's watching Pluto TV or B movie TV. Yeah, um, but B movie TV is basically like a passion project of a guy in um, you know, in South Los Angeles just. Um, no, no, no. Um, San Pedro. Whatever. Um, <laughs> there's like a there's like a two hour difference, Tim. Um, Not to me. Uh, it's you know, too... essentially, the, these um, what we're talking about are kind of um, you know passion projects by people putting their stuff on uh, Roku. Um, and then finding it's not financially viable and then um, just kind of giving up. Uh, B-Movie TV has continued somehow. But um, what I'm talking about are like um, kind of the streaming services that you get on, uh, I don't know how it is for other devices, but Tim and I both have Roku, and um, Roku has its own um, 
content that it will stream. Uh, it's free. You know, you yeah, it's, have it's free with it. it's ads. That, yeah, you just basically have to put up with the ads like breaking into the flow of the content. Yeah, and that was how I how I got reacquainted with Interstate sixty after like fifteen years or however long. Yeah, which we I, apparently we like just cannot stop talking about it because we're talking about it now. Yeah, it's um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so it's a good way to it's it's because I mean, and it has certainly affected my um, my sense of taste because I'm watching a lot of just forgettable also ran media. Like, I mean, my my diet consists mostly of, yeah, like movies that other people aren't aware of or care about or like, I mean, I'm I'm going back through Outer Limits from the 90s with a mm-hmm. lot of, you know, B-list actors who, you know, you're like, oh, like this one's got. Michael Gross in it. This one's got Ian Ziering in it, and you're like, so? It's like, well, <laughs> for a for a brief moment it's in time, history. that was in, yeah. For a brief moment in time, that was important. Like, yeah, yeah like I Amanda think- Plummer was a get, you know, for for this episode. <laughs> yeah, and I think what we're uh, talking about is the the final form of uh, you know to tie it back to theatrical exhibition, the double bill. Um, the double feature isn't even a fucking thing anymore, like, apart from... It is with us. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to say, apart from theaters like, um, I was going to say the New Beverly Theater in uh, in yeah. Los Angeles, currently owned by Quentin Tarantino because of his love of repertory cinema, um, basically. And even before he bought it, like, the whole, the entire programming slate was, was double features. Um, but it was, like, good double features. The way that they used to practice... Uh, Double features back in the day is you get your your A picture and then you get what they call the B picture, um, which was something kind of cheap and crappy that they put in to fill <laughs> yes. fill out the rest of your day at the cinema. We, because we, we gave we gave people that option uh, last Halloween because we just played things we had. We just a lot of time we just play stuff we have prints of or mm-hmm. you know or if it's something we really want we do go for a DCP of it, but. Last year, uh, our projectionist got his hands finally on an original print of The Exorcist. Wow! So we played the, we played The Exorcist on film, and then he was like, "I don't really know what to make the double feet. Like, I don't have anything that really works with it." Exorcist so Exorcist Two. <laughs> well, we didn't have a print. So what he what he picked was The Devil's Advocate. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so it was the abs- So everyone who stuck around was a real hero and watched film. A lot of people didn't just just didn't watch film too at all. Uh, but well, uh, it was a magical because... time for all of us who stuck around because that is just. I mean that that movie works as like camp courtroom drama now. It's great. Yeah, that's yeah, so funny because like it's a um like at the time that was an A picture. It's got like fucking Al Pacino in it. But yeah. and now it has the second life as like a, a cult movie. Yeah, and mm-hmm. you know Keanu doing his thing. Got yes. uh, what's it? Keanu Charlize Theron was, is in it. That was Keanu before he was, um, you know, a a universally beloved action um, hero, kind of like saintly, like action star. Um, yeah, there was a time when Keanu was basically like the butt of jokes about acting, like constantly because he was considered uh, not a good know, actor, like not a good actor. <laughs> But uh, and that's so funny to me because like that was that was how I you know um, being Gen X like that's how I remember Keanu. But now he's like, uh, like he's completely changed in like public perception. Yeah, I mean you remember him. John Wick movies did a lot for him. Yeah, yes. you remember him more as a uh, Bill and Ted or a minor character from Dangerous Liaisons. 
Yeah, and I think that, or like uh, ruining every scene he's in in um, uh, what's the Branagh film, the one Branagh Shakespeare film that he's in? Johnny Mnemonic. Uh, n- <laughs> That sounds like Brana. Yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah see? <laughs> um, fuck. Uh, much Ado About Nothing. Okay, I haven't seen that one. Because at the time, mm. it was like, why would you put Keanu Reeves in your Shakespeare film? This is absolutely laughable. But now, not so much. Stunt casting, you know? yeah. Yeah. Jeez, um, yeah, so... Um, I don't. Rem- uh, I've I've completely lost. My you were you were talking you were talking about uh, double features because they don't really exist anymore. But you know there are there are rep cinemas a lot of the time trying to keep them. Well, now they uh, keep keep them it going sounds because they're they are a bit of a uh, people have nostalgia for them. Well, now it sounds like they exist in block booking, right? <laughs> like it's like well here's there yeah here's the good that's a double feature there yeah it's a double feature that you pay for twice. That's that's that, that's what it should be. It should be joker straight into motherless brooklyn and you're not allowed to leave <laughs> they, <laughs> they lock the doors from the outside really <laughs> yeah well and let's also um refresh our memories on um how people used to see movies back in um you know mid mid 20th century um you would pay a pittance to go into the theater and stay all day if you felt like it yeah it's a good way to get the kids out of your hair yeah, like, I mean, yeah. that was something that my my mom and dad would do. Uh, my dad's silent generation. My mom is a, is a, is a boomer. Um, you, you don't know, you say. Pay, you pay like a buck or whatever. <laughs> I don't even remember how much they'd pay for a movie. And then, you know, you'd wa- you, sometimes you would walk in in the middle of a movie, you know, and then you'd stay and catch the beginning of it at the next showing. So like, it was kind of like TV movie. in a way. So, yeah, and to the point where um, there were some directors that actually enforced um, a particular arrival time, like um, Hitchcock did it with with Psycho. He's like, no, you can't just walk in in the middle of Psycho. Like, you have to come at the beginning, and you have to watch the whole thing from beginning to end. And that was that was very novel, because the way that uh, people would were used to uh, seeing movies a lot of time is like, you know, let's just fucking kill half a day at the, at the movie theater. And now I right. feel as though um, which seems completely are, foreign. They're, they're just publicly playing something all the time, and you can just walk in or walk out whenever you want. Yeah, and I feel like exhibitors would be, um, you know, they would like it if people came in and spent half a day at the theater if they were spending money the whole time. But um, mm-hmm. I think they, w- I don't think that they would like it if people just like sat there for like half a day just yeah now, well because our ticket prices are so cheap a lot of our members will come in and just say yeah i'm gonna watch the next three so i'll just pay for all three tickets right now oh wow. we have people who do that sometimes is so. this is this a canadian thing is it just it's because a baller I, move I, I mean who knows it could be I, I honestly so polite. think it, <laughs> I, I think it's just it, it's very possible it's just the membership thing like a lot of people sign up for memberships because they want to support the local independent cinema so mm-hmm. like that's a lot of time that's kind of that's kind of it but we we do have some nice members who come in and you know they'll watch two or three and they'll just pay up front to watch all of them do you think that um because uh richard lorber mentioned um uh ideally innovation and that people might experiment with subscription models do you think that exhibitors will start trying to bank on on loyalty uh do you think it's something that could be exploited the way that um major studios have exploited geekdom yeah, I feel like it could be. I mean, you guys have AMC who's doing that right now, right? You guys have that already. 
Yeah, I think um, AMC is AMC like... has like a 25 a month or a 30 a month thing. And you can just kind of see like a movie every weekend or something like that or something. I don't know exactly how it works, but that's what it sounds like they're kind of aiming towards, which could be, you know, uh, theoretically, that could be a replacement. We already have a membership, so it's not that hard to be like, we'll just make your membership a little bit more expensive and you can mm-hmm. just you can use it every month to come in and see a certain amount of films or, you know, yeah. something or other like that. I, I see that being uh, a definite possibility the just to match just so that people mm-hmm. see it the same way that they see their monthly subscription to you know like netflix and stuff like that if you can just be like yeah you now have a theater subscription yes yeah and uh, i think so the was, subscription uh, model finally conquers all things like for entertainment and uh you know, for for movies and software and cell phones podcasts. And, yeah podcasts yeah two dollars a month yep. yeah <laughs> And you get it up. and you get <laughs> absolutely banging content like this <laughs> rambling discussion. <laughs> <laughs> um, we like to provide a, a friendship experience. We want you, the listener, to think of us as your friend. Yeah, no but matter, not in a creepy way. <laughs> Don't DM me, please. <laughs> no one ever DMs me. Please DM me. <laughs> Tim, I guarantee you that Tim does not want you to DM him. Um, what do you think, Josh? What do you think the implications are going to be for your theater in the next couple of years if they really do end up uh, retracting the Paramount decree? Uh, well, it's it's a little unpredictable still how exactly it's going to affect independent. It sounds like it's going to be a little bit more directly harmful to multiplexes. Mm-hmm. Um, in in terms of the idea of this block booking, because I've just like the idea of block booking, I don't even think really. It doesn't even make sense for a lot of the distributors that we work with because they're so small. They don't have like an A-list film and a D-list film, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's not like Warner Brothers or something like that who actually does have that kind of stuff. Um, so it's hard to say exactly how the Paramount stuff will uh, affect us like at, at this point in time. But I see nothing good arising from it. Like It's just asking for more deregulation on people who are getting away with some stuff that should be more regulated as it is like the idea of disney just like the number one biggest studio in the world being able to buy the third biggest studio yes is is a problem in the first place so the fact that that deal went through uh means exposes to me the idea that we should already be regulating that industry more and so the idea that they're saying yeah no let's give disney more freedoms to just do more uh stuff that again they are doing, you know, almost entirely out of spite, just harming the little guys in, intentionally and calculatedly. Yeah, I guess mm-hmm. the question is, like, what what do you picture is, like, the end game for this, you know, to, to borrow a term from Marvel movies? <laughs> well, if, 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 if the deregulation goes through, the end game is that you're going to go to the local Disney house and there's going to be six Disney films for you to see. Uh, and they might not have the Disney logo in front of them because they'll, you know, they'll own Fox. It's going to be the same way like a giant video game publisher buys a small independent, um, you know, developer. They're going to be like, yeah, technically you're still watching, you're still playing a game by this company, but, you yeah, know. The money goes into the, Disney's pockets. Right. And they have oversight on it. They can tell you, actually, we don't want that in that movie. Actually, no, we're not going to make that because there's, you know, as we've already mentioned, you know, there is a certain point where even if something is profitable and people want to see it and they have democratically selected to go and see it, Disney will be like, well, that's not enough people. Mm. 
So we're not going to do that. Instead, we're going to force everyone to go see Frozen 2 or we're going to see, you know, whatever. At any, I, I think I did the math on it recently. And if you look at the release schedule of films that play at multiplexes, it's something like 55% of what you're watching at a multiplex is now Disney. And Christ. probably at any at any given moment, it's likely more than that because Disney films actually last longer in theaters than most other films. Like half the time you will see, you know, uh, you know, a, a Marvel film will play in theaters for three or four months, if not longer sometimes. Uh, and again, that's taking up a screen that is then not going to, you know, uh, a smaller mid-budget film, which is, you know, exactly what led us into this conversation, into all these conversations in the first place, which is what Scorsese was saying. He's like, I typically make at most like a mid to high, a mid-budget movie, basically, to high-budget movie. The the only reason The Irishman is as expensive as it is is because of the CG. If it wasn't the CG, it would be just a mid-budget movie. Um, so, like, he makes mid-budget movies, and he's just like, mid-budget movies, even for a guy who's won however many Oscars, it's becoming more difficult and more difficult every single year um and that's just again that's because of the amount of deregulation we already have so you know the idea of just doing more of it if you see all the current problems if you're like i go to the multiplex and i don't have options and you feel that way already you're just going to feel more that way in fact the multiplexes are just going to get bought out by those companies and that's just that's going to be yeah you have every option that disney chooses to avail you Jumping yes. off of that, um, and something which has been, I've seen it in the in the trade press, and it's something which is occurring to me, is um, this idea of uh, returning to vert vertical integration, and um, companies perhaps getting back into uh, distribution and exhibition. Like regard regarding exhibition, <clears throat> I can't see um, companies you know, really wanting to go, you know, buying up theaters unless they are a Disney or possibly a Netflix. Uh, Disney for the reason that they have product that will play for, you know, three to four months. And Netflix, because they're trying to be, quote unquote, like a real studio, um, like in the well, old yeah, sense. Because, um, well, yeah, because the, because the the model that they chose to make money on is not enough to actually cover the costs of making the, um, you know, the the films that they're making. Like that's that was the issue that they that Netflix hit was that they were like, yeah, we're gonna disrupt the ticket buying market with a subscription market, and they were like, holy shit, this is why no one can get shit made mm -hmm. on a subscription market because it's just not enough money. Yeah, and uh, again, like that's that's a little beyond me of how the Netflix model is going to be sustainable at all i mean they're they're in billions of dollars of debt they're going into further billions of dollars of debt um well, and all of this to pursue the end of being like uh like look at us we're like an actual um you know production <laughs> house like we make content we we, we, we make stuff it. that you scroll by and go that's not a real show yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah, it's the it, same it's, thing it's, like it's other so online content is that it isn't sustainable with the way that um, it's bringing in advertising money, which is why you have such an arms race with online advertising, because just the money that they're pulling in to support like online journalism and things like that isn't enough to, to sustain it, which is why to pay journalists get... hmm? to pay journalists. Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, which is why you get more and more invasive advertising, which is why you have, you know, your uh, information being, you know, captured and sold, um, which is why there's such a an 
over-reliance on metrics to try to, you know, gin up and tweak content to, you know, squeeze the most value from it because so much of it just doesn't pay the bills. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're trying to optimize for the situation that, you know, fundamentally isn't enough to sustain this market. So you're, yeah. So I don't know if it's just desperation that drives such, you know, invasive and aggressive marketing, but it's, it certainly is a, it's a good reason or it's a valid reason. <laughs> I'm not saying it's good, but. Yeah. And again, like I, Disney does have its own, it does have a flagship theater in Los Angeles on uh, Hollywood Boulevard, the El Capitan. Yeah. And which actually been... loses money. Oh, does it? Yeah. It doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Cause it's always, it's, it's been like Disney's like repertory theater basically, or you can go like sing along to little mermaid or whatever. I did see Tron there and it, <laughs> it looked great. Um, but it remains to be seen if Disney will really go all in on exhibition with exhibition seemingly being, um, you know, somewhat moribund. Well, hey, if they can make enough off of Disney Plus, maybe they'll just, you know, shut down everything that isn't earning enough of a profit for them. Cool. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm going to sign up for Disney Plus so I can watch Bob Crane and Super Dad. <laughs> I'm I'm going to stick with B-Movie TV. It hasn't done me wrong yet. It's literally more entertaining than a lot of the old Disney live action movies. I yeah, have to say. yeah. Those, I, those movies all that, suck. Well, that was the funniest thing about Disney Plus is it was like, do you want to watch Marvel? Do you want to watch Star Wars? Do you want to watch like the Disney Renaissance films? And then it, people are like, yeah, okay. I mean, like, sure. And then it's like, well, now you get that. And with every single shitty movie we made for nearly a century that almost bankrupted us. <laughs> Congrats. Finally. Those are coming out of the uh, vault. Like, fuck aliens <laughs> and die hard. We want the cat is, from outer space. It is wild because, um, you know. Uh, they almost went bankrupt in the what, late 80s, early 90s. Like, that was like they, because they, like, no one was watching their garbage. They yeah, produced pre, absolute drivel for families. Pre yeah, Little well, Mermaid, because even their even their feature animation had suffered quite a bit. Um, and and they know that, which is why they only acquire good content. They don't make it. <laughs> well, it, it it turns out well, that, that, well it, that that was literally why they bought Pixar. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It Pixar was eating their it, lunch, and so you know, they. It turns out that it takes a lot of money and effort to make feature animation so i mean why would you even do it it's stupid yeah you should <laughs> did you did you guys Richard see Williams. the lion king they put out this year <laughs> sorry did you say see again? the lion king no that they put out this year no oh the um cg one no well and, and not only is it cg the thing that blew my mind about it was that they they took this movie and it was just some of the most beautiful like hand-drawn expressive animation you've probably ever seen in a film mm-hmm and and they were like, okay, we have this groundbreaking digital technology and like the amount of money that like a small nation has. So like, what can we do to this thing? Mm-hmm. And they were like, what if we imagined that beautiful animation, but it had the limitations of actual cameras that were like shit you see every day. <laughs> so they were like, I was sitting there watching it and I was like, literally... They, they, they walked you through the behind the scenes of it. John Favreau was like, yeah, this is a completely CG universe. We had virtual cameras put into this amazing environment and we could do anything with that camera. And what he decided to do was like, what if that awesome musical sequence that had all these expressive colors and feelings in them 
And what if it was like an HD drone shot instead? <laughs> like that was the level of imagination they deemed worthy of like $200 million. Wow. And that is the end result of the promise of the digital backlot, which we have been talking about on the show. You can do anything and you're just, you're doing a, um, you're <laughs> doing a Zemeckis and you're just trying to replicate reality. Yeah. We'll show everything no matter how, <laughs> no matter how, how what dull or uninteresting. Well, and, 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 and also, the, the, That's and also the, for me the yeah. animals fucking talk, like they obey the rules of physics so much. And then they just start talking and your brain just goes, what the fuck is happening? Well, it's also yeah, they need a Lion because, King without um, any dialogue. That's. It's the real well, life. it's insane because animals do not express themselves the way humans do. Animals have their own language, which which is expressive to other animals. Yes, but, it's song. You know when they did, you know, for like there was a there was an animated horse movie that came out like years ago. Um, Spirit Stallion of the of the West. Similarian. Spirited away. Called. Yeah. Or, um. Or wait, no, that's the that's the that's the that's Miyazaki. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is yeah. um crap for horse girls that I'm talking about. Um, as a horse, you know, girl, yeah. they made a movie with a um, you know, the protagonist is a horse. They had to give him eyebrows. I mean, horses. <laughs> well, how else do you show that a horse is surprised? Horses don't, I mean, a real horse does not have eyebrows because it does not express itself with the same facial expressions that a human does. But if you want to tell a story about a horse having emotions that will resonate with a human audience, you got to put eyebrows on the horse. Yeah, I mean, it, a, a, a horse can express depression pretty well, apparently. Like, that's all I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if, if you are interested in Bojack watching... Bojack also has eyebrows. <laughs> Oh, well, there you go. That's true, yeah, actually. But sorry, you were saying, Josh. <laughs> I was saying, if you guys are interested in watching those Lion King musical numbers, but like it's just a flat uh, drone shot of just a real lion walking around, because that's the physical movements it's forced to do, because it's physically what a, a you know lion cub can do. Yes, and its mouth just moves while songs play and that's it like that's what's what they like there's there's no like the shots where like the giraffes form like a uh giant dance circle and raise the lion up because that it's like it's physically impossible and it looks crazy yeah so instead you get to watch this really boring thing and it made 1.6 billion dollars and no one's ever gonna talk about it again How? You know, my little baby sister who went to see it said she watched it and i was like oh d like w what it stood out to you and she was like i got tired <laughs> what she said. that's uh it really cuts right to it so like and like this is what we're sacrificing the new martin scorsese film to watch like they were like yeah i would just rather not see a new martin scorsese film instead i would rather watch like the you know a film i've already seen and like sold back to me at insane prices to just be made worse yeah and and, and that is disney, the really that's the only disney choice isn't that... even doing sorry i'm sorry tim but okay. i really need to make this point because yeah. this is critical and i'm not a disney fan let's put it that way like i'm not i'm I, i'm not a pass holder with a with a lanyard with pins on it or any of that bullshit but i do appreciate what disney is good at because even um you know, the Disney features that I've watched that, you know, and they're exactly what you expect, you know, like Frozen was okay, like Moana was enjoyable. Um, the artistry is exquisite. And mm -hmm. with movies like The Lion King, Disney is not even doing what Disney is best at. It is, mm -hmm. you do not get the Exploiting the workers? Joy. Or... <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about the positive things, Tim, the quote-unquote positive right. things. I... 
Right. Like, 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 like when you have a lot of money to spend on this groundbreaking technology and you actually put storytellers behind it, like they often do with, you know, with, with Pixar. Yeah. It's like, you know, they can make some good stuff. They've definitely, you know, I don't even hate the stuff that they've done with the new Star Wars movies. Yeah. Um, I, I think the fact that they gave Ryan Johnson full writing and directing control over a Star Wars movie is pretty phenomenal. Yeah. And I mean, wait, there's obvi- obviously there's a huge debate going on about whether or not that's a good thing because, you know, you either you either hate the sequels or you love the sequels, it seems to be. I thought that they Hey, were... but I mean, I was going to say, if you watch George Lucas movies, that's what watching George Mo- Lucas movies is like. <laughs> <laughs> well, the... Yeah, like... Well, the thing that the, you... Um, we're an anti-prequel podcast. I'll just say it. Yeah. Well, we're we're <laughs> sensible. Suck. Well, the the thing that you had uh, mentioned earlier about um, you know seeing like the you know, we gave up the Irishman to be able to see a CG Lion King, and it's like, well, that is exactly you know what Disney wants. It it wants you to be able to say the this is my favorite Disney movie versus my you know this is my least favorite Disney movie but they're like hey it's fine you can love it or hate it as much as you want as long as you think that Disney movies is all that there is and we have protected our copyright on the Lion King right yeah right. 75 and, years. And, and, and don't have to pay the original artists as much anymore right yes <laughs> yeah that's right that it could have uh the it could have quite a bit of impact on residuals and whatnot no yeah that that, that was what they said they did with Aladdin that apparently the the guys who worked on the original Aladdin, like a lot of the artists, mm-hmm. like and and a lot of the music too, is that now they can they they can sell these new variations on the same movie, and the percents are going more to Disney than ever before because before you know now they're a massive company that can actually pressure, um, you know dick. when they made those deals with those original artists, mm-hmm. you know hey they're they, they're they they're altering the terms pray they don't alter it further. You know, from that di- <laughs> from that popular Disney movie, Star Wars. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh, Empire. Yeah, it... Don't don't write in. <laughs> well, Josh, we we wish you the best at your little scrappy independent theater. Yeah, uh, thanks. And if, if you guys have an independent cinema like near you, like check it out. Sometimes you know, sometimes they'll be playing stuff you don't want to see. I'm not saying go watch stuff you don't want to see. Because, you know, a lot of them have to make their money playing old British dramas for people. Yeah. But, you know, if they happen to be playing something, then you can either wait and see it there or you, you know, they are playing something that, you know, instead of waiting for it to come out at home, go go check it out. Go watch a new movie with an audience. Because I got to say, what, being able to see The Irishman and seeing it, I mean, we in a packed house with people there on opening night, it was a pretty special screening and especially because some people actually did leave that movie kind of sobbing a little bit so (laughs) so yeah so yeah like those those experiences are getting harder and harder to find so if you got an indie theater near you go check it out absolutely oh yeah oh and by by the way also if we're going to talk about independent cinema you were saying that you didn't hear about highlight criterion channel just added a brand new film that came out from this year beautiful film it's called an elephant sitting still it's a Chinese four hour long Chinese film made by a, a man named Hubo. And he unfortunately actually committed suicide during the post production of the film. So it's his very first film and his very last film. Ooh. And it's, it's a, it's a heavy sit because it's very clearly made by a guy in a, uh, we'll say a suicidal ideation headspace. It's a very wow. uh, nihilistic film, but it is one of the most moving films that I saw this year, and I wasn't sure it was ever going to get any kind of release because I saw it at TIFF like two years ago now, 
Criterion just made it available for streaming on their website. So uh, it's available there. I, so like, yeah, I can't think of a more 2019 film than a movie, uh, a heavy film made by a guy with suicidal ideation, to tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah, he had his finger on the pulse. He's ahead of the yeah. curve. Yeah, so... So that one you got to see. That's a small underrated indie film that I tried to program, but it's hard to fit a four-hour yeah. slot in. I'm going to be honest. Well, thank you uh, for mentioning for a foreign it film. because I have seen it. I have seen it come up on Criterion, but didn't know anything about it. So yeah. thank you for shouting it out to the listeners. And I don't know if it's the same for you know other people who you know go to um, you know screenings of sort of obscure movies, but it's like when you feel like you found something that is not getting proper representation, like you feel like you become a champion of that movie. It's oh yeah, yeah. like it's yes. I mean, for better or worse, it's like the way I feel about you know Interstate sixty. It's certainly the way I feel about B movie TV, where it's this sort of thing that's like, guys, like have you have you heard and seen about this thing? You become like you know and mm-hmm. you, and uh evangelist you become a curator yourself right it's just like it's you know it's there's there's, there is an investment in doing that where you see something and you're like you know what i want other people to have the chance uh to see this which is kind of like how i view programming i'm always at work always trying to pitch the owners on like stuff that's just weird enough that i don't think it's going to get seen very much like jang yamu's uh shadow we just had a Mm -hmm. one night showing of his new martial arts film that's the guy who who made fucking hero in house of the flying daggers and he couldn't get a very big theatrical release in canada and i'm like how yeah so we had a one night showing of it and people turned out we gave out posters everyone loved it it was crazy so like support people like the old guys who are struggling to get movies made who shouldn't and also support like the new young scrappy guys like the safety brothers who got uncut gems i think opening in theaters sometime this month and i saw that at tiff it's one of the best things i saw this year adam sandler unbelievable in it it's like an old school 70s character piece made today and i'm really scared that it's not going to get a theatrical release in canada at all no canadian Ugh. distributor has bought no. the rights to it so you guys have a24 in the states at least who's for yeah. sure yeah and it. they've been they've so been doing great definitely check it with out. the exception that of was um, lit. what's that with the exception no, of ahead, with the me. exception of midsummer yeah a24 has been doing great <laughs> <laughs> yeah tim didn't care for that one not but at yeah all. like un, um that uncut gems trailer looked lit i do want to see that because uh i did um it's, if we're going it's very very good if we're going back to adam sandler character studies um i really love punch drunk love so yeah it was uh you can show um you know paul thomas anderson can make a short movie <laughs> well this th- th- this one's got a uncut gems has got a bit more of like good time meets kind of like an old school cassavetes movie kind of thing going for it nice it's just it, you just watch a guy very stressfully make bad decisions for like two hours (laughs) oh wow that's who's also a gambling addict so it's about the last 20 years of my life yeah that's something i can relate to um (laughs) yeah and and certainly like that's you know it's a great subject to touch on you know for our listeners too like you know be go forth and be a curator like you know you're an active participant in this too like you know find the movies that you love and champion them yeah, and I think that, um, you know, not to overstate the importance of the podcast medium, but I think kind of what we're doing is we are trying to curate and um, kind of point out things that people might necessarily see, whether it's, uh, you know, media or a political notion. Um, yeah, I mean, because, I mean, I don't know about you, but I do kind of have that worry in the back of my head that, you know, culture is in its own way a kind of newspeak in that when you know, words or films or whatever, you know, cultural notions disappear, you can 
forget that they ever existed to the point mm-hmm. where, you know, we might be, you know, uh, criticizing or talking about a particular subset of movies, not realizing, you know, that that is a subset and believe and mistaking it for the totality of, you know, the cinematic experience. When it's like, yes. no, like it's a very small part of it and there's so much more to it that, you know, you need to maintain the constant vigilance to to even be aware of to to know that there is more to it than whatever's on Disney Plus whatever's whatever is the next Netflix original to know that there is more out there and you have to actively be in search of it yes and in the era of uh streaming and the fire hose of content um it sometimes feel that it feels like you're fighting a losing battle right yeah um, cuz you know yeah it is it's because content is constantly being you know, surfaced and buried, you know, in the same way that Disney doesn't care that aliens or Die Hard or whatever were huge, you know, cultural touchstone blockbusters for decades. They're like, you know, it's kind of a what have you done for me lately? It's like, yeah, that was fine, but it had its time. We need to pave over it. You know, yeah. <laughs> we need to we need to clear cut considering... the Amazon and, and, you know, put up a parking lot. And it's wild considering how much of Disney's branding is nostalgia, um, not just for its own product, but, you know, just go to Main Street at Disneyland and it's a nostalgia for an America, which, you know, kind of never really existed. But yeah, know, yeah, it's a it's, it's a 90 there. year old character is famous for being for existing, basically. Like, what's the last yes. what's the last like amazing original thing that people associate with Mickey Mouse was it's like. What a, a Christmas Carol and Steamboat Willie? Like Steamboat Willie is like older than our grandparents. Yeah, like. and <laughs> yeah, and but um, let's uh, let's also make it clear that um, and this is kind of the the lie at the heart of branding is that you know people will tell you that they're about one thing where underneath it's really about you know how much money they're making, um, and that's capitalism for you. I mean, they'll try to dress it up with nostalgia or, um, you know, um, try to try to present themselves as, um, you know, artistic innovators or whatever. But really, it just comes down to the dollar. Uh, Or I was going to say Disney right now with Marvel definitely trying to pivot into sort of like more like woke social justice storytelling while at the same time being funded by like dark money sometimes (laughs) like it's like. It's like guys, guys, come on! Yes, yeah, and, and watch, watching Bob Iger weaponize uh, the few people of color he's he's casted in this yeah who debate who he only was, it just blew my mind. He was like, you know what? I'm a good thing for independent African American filmmakers because I hire <laughs> because <one." laughs> I hire the ones that will make me money. Yes, it's like they're a, they're yes. a useful tool in my you know a useful pawn in my game. Yeah. Yes, where I was like, I was like, that is nothing in comparison to Brad Pitt, who never ever brings it up, but he has a production company that funds small films that otherwise would not get made, all the time. Yes. He uses, uh, it's it's called Plan B, and you'll see sometimes see it in front of films. Yeah. But like, he's the reason Moonlight got made. Yeah. It, like it's, it's like you know, and 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 same with uh, he did one this year called Last Black Man in San Francisco which was like a really awesome little film about friendship and gentrification in San Francisco. Mm. Um, very artfully made. And like, again, like the idea that like Bob Iger thinks he's doing that. 
Yeah, it, because he made Black Panther. Yeah, it blows and, my yeah, it mind. Shows, it's like those aren't those aren't the same films. Yeah, yeah in any capacity. It shows a very shallow performative notion of wokeness. Yeah, and two yeah. things about that, like this is one thing that you saw flung around a lot on social media in the wake of the um, you know Scorsese interview is like, well, Marvel made Black Panther, you know, and they it's like hire young diverse filmmakers actually they're not old white men like martin scorsese right. yeah yeah, yeah. So i was, was like well martin scorsese's not complaining about just him he's like he's also complaining that young independent diverse filmmakers don't have the same freedoms that even he might have had you know like 30 or 40 years ago well yeah. and this is the point that i wanted to make is um okay like yeah marvel made black panther which you know i thought was an incredibly mediocre film um but scorsese has his world cinema initiative and everyone every geek on twitter you know talking very high-handedly about well it's very important to support women and poc in the industry it's like okay so you're gonna sign up for criterion and you're gonna uh are you gonna watch all these like world movies that scorsese has enabled to be distributed right you can this movie doesn't even have an action figure no, it's not. It's not actually what they care about. What they care about is watching things that they find entertaining, guilt-free. <laughs> yeah, it's like you were. No, you're just going to continue sucking on a pacifier, basically. Right. You know, well, and telling yourself that you're a good person because you paid to see Wonder Woman, Woman the week it came out. I mean, and I'll say it. Or like, the Ghostbusters um, reboot. Yeah, like you know, it's po- like uh, their their politics aren't outstandingly well thought out. But this is something that Red Letter Media uh, warned us about. Mike Saclasa talked about, um, you know, kind of like woke casting um, in uh, the Star Wars prequels. You know, it's like, oh yeah, they got Samuel Jackson. You know, they got like, uh, or you know, they're putting more like Asian actors in. Um, yeah, well, it was yeah, it was Mister Plinkett who's like, I'm just gonna say it. Black people don't watch Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, and it's like okay which you know i mean maybe maybe that's less the case with uh you know in light of uh john boyega but it's like disney uh disney slash star wars slash lucasfilm they're not doing this for woke reasons and john boyega's no. casting is not going to have any significant impact on the you know um the right. well-being of african-americans like it's well, the, this, uh, it's wokeness yeah, being sold to you. And this is the same thing, you know, that I'm seeing in media that I had initially seen in politics sometime around, um, I think, I think it was probably before Obama got elected, but it was the um, disingenuous notion that, um, you know, of inclusive diversity, which is uh, the short version of it isn't to say we want a diversity of voices. It's more saying you marginalize groups. We want you to have a place at the table but don't forget it is our table that you're, you know, that you feast at. Mm-hmm. Like it, mm-hmm. it isn't saying you can go off and be empowered on your own as a formerly marginalized person. It's saying we invite you to buy into our existing power structure. We want you to be part of our system. You Black Panther, you Wonder Woman, whoever, you know, the people that these movies appeal to, these demographics, I shouldn't refer to them as people because that's not how <laughs> Disney thinks of them. Um, yeah, like they we, they want a bigger pie and they will find a way through performative, you know, woke, uh, you know, uh, actions to say, yes, we want you to be part of our system. We want you to be part of our family to do things our way. Right. Whereas like you would think if they were actually invested in having more diverse 
voices heard that they would just actually produce people's projects that otherwise wouldn't get made mm-hmm. from more diverse voices which for example uh, there's a film that came out this year called the souvenir by joanna hogg one of the better dramas that we uh played this year i programmed at our theater it played for a couple weeks and it was pretty well received and it's a very like moving film uh and executive produced by martin scorsese oh the old <laughs> white guy yeah <laughs> Yeah, and and he he just took an EP credit, and he said, "Go make your movie with Tilda Swinton." And uh, I forget the 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 lead woman. Oh, it's actually it's Tilda Swinton's daughter. I think is actually uh, the the other the, the lead actress of the film. Um, but so it's just it's like this weird thing where like you know like weirdly enough like people who have been in this industry for a long time and who actually give a shit about things getting made that's how you'll see them supporting the industry they take the money that they the extra money that they've made and they put it back into those new and young voices or in as Scorsese does too sometimes he goes and hunts down prints around the world and makes sure that they get preserved so that future people can still watch them like they're not lost in a you know they don't get destroyed they don't get thrown in a dumpster like the majority of prints when the studios gave up prints that's what they did they just they chopped them up and threw them in the trash yeah so like <sighs> you know yeah. putting your money into preserving film yeah, it's- and to making sure that small projects by diverse filmmakers get made that's the future of actually yeah like re, re- uh, caring about this reinvesting stuff. in your own in- industry rather than saying how much more of it can we own and control yes yes oh. spot on yeah well, that's a that's a that's a that's a dark uh, place to end on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I hope that um, we have impressed upon people. Yeah, that, that's what your two dollars gets you. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I hope we've impressed on people the importance of remembering um, these small projects that are overlooked that will only become more overlooked with the more marginalized yeah. The industry. Yeah. Um, Josh, thank you so much for your time. It's been a really great conversation. Yeah, these are some Thanks for having these me. are some fantastic insights and I really appreciate it.